to welcome you to the uh, first event in the year-long faculty development series, Speaking of Scripture, Interfaith Conversations on Teaching Sacred Texts. This series is co-sponsored by the Villanova Center for Liberal Education, VCLE, and uh, the Villanova Institute for Teaching and Learning. So we want to thank the directors of, of both those, those centers, so Jack Duty and Mary Lou Hill, and Carol Weiss, to whom we at VCLE are grateful. Thank you. Uh, for support for today's workshop, which is entitled Teaching the Binding of Isaac, Balancing Bible and Midrash, we also thank the Department of Theology and Religious Studies and its chairperson, who's not here yet, Bernard P. Prusak, he'll be here soon, and the Department of Humanities and Augustinian Traditions and its chairperson, Kevin Hughes, who couldn't be with us today, uh, though he might stop by, he said. It's my honor to introduce our distinguished guest, John Levinson, best professor of Jewish studies at Harvard University. I honestly can think of no better person to initiate our series whose aim is to improve and enrich our teaching of scripture, in particular in the context of the Augustine and Culture Seminar that all Villanova first-year students must take. More precisely, the aim of this series is to help us reflect on the implications of different ways of framing and approaching scripture, having interfaith conversations, which is to say with, with uh, scholars of different faith traditions, is a way for us to come to recognize the frames that we bring to our teaching of these texts and to glimpse other possibilities that we might communicate to our students. And Professor Levinson, we have with us today a master interpreter of the Hebrew Bible, conversant with the Talmud, Midrash, and later medieval rabbinic commentaries, the best of contemporary literary scholarship of the Bible, and contemporary historical critical research, which he both has criticized for its tendency to replace traditional interpretation and against this tendency has put to work for theological insights. Professor Levinson also brings profound knowledge of the Gospels and Paul's letters and of both the commonalities of Judaism and Christianity and the irreconcilable differences between the two. As he has observed, the context in terms of which a unit of literature is to be assessed is never self-evident, and as he has shown, changes of context can make a world of difference for what we take a text to be saying. To make this point by way of example, recontextualized by the New Testament, the Old Testament read by Christians no longer is quite the Hebrew Bible read by Jews. The titles of a handful of Professor Levinson's many books give us a sense of just how serious a scholar he is. These books include Creation and the Persistence of Evil, the Jewish Drama of Divine Omnipotence, it's one, Resurrection and the Restoration of Israel, the Ultimate Victory of the God of Life, another, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and Historical Criticism, Jews and Christians in Biblical Studies, from which I quoted just a moment ago, and uh, the Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son, the Transformation of Child Sacrifice in Judaism and Christianity. This is a book that covers today's topic, focus of our workshop. I don't exaggerate when I say that this book astounded me. It really did. When I finished it, I was just amazed by it. So without further ado, please join me in warmly welcoming Professor John Levinson. Thank you very much for that. Uh, thank you for that uh, very kind and uh, generous uh, introduction. I thought you were going to tell me you were astounded to be able to finish the book. <laughs> when you finished it, you were astounded. That sounded a little better. Uh, of course, a lot of uh, professors require their students to uh, read their own books. 
is a very common thing. They pass out a syllabus, they have their own works on there. Uh, I consider that egocentric, narcissistic. I don't require my students to read my books. I only require them to buy them. <laughs> it doesn't do me any good if they read them. Take out a library and read this thing. It doesn't help me any. Just buy them. Multiple copies. You may want to read it more than once. Uh, and so, uh, also, I, it's always a pleasure to be at Villanova. I've been here before, and I, and I uh, both times have been so impressed by the commitment to liberal arts education, to great books education, uh, the, uh, the uh, seminars, and the living arrangements in which people actually live together and talk together about little topics like liberty and justice uh, is really a, a tremendous source of satisfaction to anybody that believes in, uh, in classical ideals of education. It's very rare, I find, in American higher education today to find uh, people seriously engaged in such topics, even to find uh, faculty seriously engaged in such topics is, is rare. And so uh, I, uh, I want to commend all of you for that. Uh, never in my life uh, I'm, I'm 59 years old, I know what all of you think, uh, you don't look a day over 58. Uh, but never in my life have I ever met a, a, a Bernard Prusak before. And then today, what's the odds of this? Within two hours I met two of them. And that's really story. What's, what are the chances of that? It's like, like, like one in a billion that that would actually happen, and that's actually what, what happened to me today. So I thank uh, both of them for their assistance in uh, bringing me here and, uh, and helping me with this. Uh, what I thought I would do today, if everybody has the handout, and I thought I would do this even if you don't have the handout, uh, is uh, to talk about uh, this text, Genesis 22, uh, and uh, first, for maybe the first hour or so, we'll talk about some of the big issues it might raise, uh, but particularly what I want to do is to uh, give it a close read-through, read through it carefully, uh, uh, making some uh, comments, and then maybe in the second hour or, or uh, sooner, if we finish sooner, to uh, uh, talk about some of the issues this raises, the big existential, theological, conceptual issues that this raises that ought to come up in a program uh, like the August, Augustine and Culture uh, Seminar. So if you have this uh, handout, let's, let's just talk, uh, uh, let's just read through this carefully. I assume many of you have read this already. I think you... Uh, those who haven't maybe saw the movie. Actually, I don't think there is a movie of Genesis 22. Uh, uh, years ago, some movie came out called The Prince of Egypt. I never saw it. Someone asked me, have you seen it? I said, no, I'm waiting for the book. Uh, but so uh, you probably know the story of Abraham that much. You can say that Abraham was a man uh, promised that he'd be the father of a great nation. Uh, but there was a problem there. Uh, he was the father of nobody, and his wife was infertile. Now, uh, uh, the, uh, how is a man who's the father of nobody going to become the father of a great nation? It reminds me of that uh, slightly off-color joke of the time the Jew got on the bus and sat next to the Catholic priest. And the Catholic priest was wearing the collar. He hadn't yet kicked the habit. And the uh, Jew turns to him and says, Pardon me, sir. Uh, do you know you have your shirt on backwards? <laughs> and the priest says, No, no, no. You don't understand. I'm a, I'm a father. And the Jew says, well, I'm a father too. You don't see me wearing my shirt backwards. <laughs> and the priest says, no, you don't, you don't understand. I'm a father to thousands. The Jew said, in that case, leave your shirt the way it is and put your pants on backwards. <laughs> now, Abraham has promised he's going to be the father of thousands, but actually he's the father of nobody. And that's a major problem. I won't go through all the uh, complexities and intricacies of this uh, fascinating and uh, literarily and theologically rich story, uh, but I'll simply say that finally, 
gets this uh, when he's uh, old, and his wife is 90, she gives birth to the promised son, Isaac. And what we have in this chapter 22 is uh, a story in which it uh, looks as though he's going to have to give up Isaac. That's in 40 seconds, and not counting the uh, tasteless joke, uh, that's the background to Genesis 22 itself immediately, the narrative background. So here we are in, in text one on the handout. Sometime afterward, God put Abraham to the test. One question one could ask immediately is, what brought about this test? It seems to come out of absolutely nowhere. It seems to come absolutely out of nowhere. You wouldn't have guessed by the end of chapter 21, which those of you with advanced training in mathematics will know is the chapter before 22, <laughs> that there was going to be any sort of test that this was ever going to be happening. Uh, you might you can question in uh, rabbinic uh, interpreters, interpreters of the Hebrew Bible in the Jewish community in the first, second, third, fourth centuries, uh, and actually even much earlier than that, even as early as the second century BCE, are trying to figure out what is the what is, what provoked this, what instigated this test. Uh, one answer that was given in the second century BCE and is continuing in rabbinic literature into the second, third, and fourth centuries and later in, in Jewish literature, takes the prologue to Job, Job 1 through 2, and, and fits Abraham into that situation. That is to say, a demonic figure in the heavenly council, or not demonic, but a negative, hostile figure, a kind of prosecuting attorney in the heavenly council, like the Satan of Genesis 1 through 2, raises a question. He says, uh, what, uh, why, why you, God, why are you so proud of Abraham? Uh, he's, what has he done that's so great? You ask him to sacrifice his son, see if he obeys you. Up till now, everything you've given him uh, has paid off for him. Obedience has paid off. He's made no sacrifice yet. Uh, but why don't we test him and see whether we can invert that relationship of deed and consequence. So that by obeying you, he gives up something instead of gaining something. And see whether then he is willing to, uh, to, uh, for, to stand with uh, his fidelity to you and to obey your command. Again, there's a gap there that's filled in by narrative moves like the one I just uh, quoted. And that continues uh, in, in Jewish literature. God put Abraham to the test. He said to him, Abraham, and he answered, and there really is no, no decent translation of this word, hineni in Hebrew. They translate here as, uh, here I am. But he's not asking about location. The hinei uh, draws attention to the immediacy of the person saying it. The immediate presence, the alertness and attentiveness of the person saying it. So some people might translate it as something like, uh, at your command, at your service, I've seen that sort of translation. It sounds a little bit too much like a muffler shop to me. That at your service, at your command. We don't have an English word like that. But it's, it's a light motif, it's a light word. It's, a, it's a, a, a continuing refrain throughout this text. In this little text, it occurs three times. He said, here I am, one word, Hineni. And he said, this is verse 2, Take your son, your favored only one, the one whom you love, Isaac. Now you might wonder, why do we have these four um, terms here? We could just say, take your son. After all, his other son, Ishmael, has been expelled. In the previous chapter, Ishmael is expelled. Previous chapter 21 looks a lot like 22, where the son is expelled, it looks as though he's going to die, and an angel intervenes and he lives. The story of Ishmael in 21 and the story of Isaac in 22 have a lot in common with each other, but the point is, 
Ishmael's off the scene. At the very end of 21, his mother, Hagar, takes a wife for him from among the Egyptians, her own people, the Egyptians, that namely meaning he's out of the family line, he's out of the line of descent, he's out of the heritage at this point. So the only son left is Isaac. So why say take your son and then say you are whatever Yahid means, your only son, your favorite son? Uh, why repeat it? And uh, why say Asher Havta, the one whom you love? Why stress the love of uh, Abraham for Isaac? And then why finally give the name Isaac? I could imagine some sort of, I don't know, seventh grade English teacher red penciling everything before Isaac. Just take Isaac. The other stuff is redundant. And if you read for information and you don't pay attention to the, the drama of reading, to the act of reading, and you just look for information, you don't read the monarch notes to the Bible, whatever, you miss the importance of the, of the uh, repetition. I think the point of the repetition is, first of all, to, to uh, underscore what Isaac is to Abraham. It's his son, uh, but he's not just his son, he's a special, a favored, whatever that word, Yechidacha, means, your special son, your favored son your only son. Uh, and lest you think he's someone you're willing to get rid of, right? there are people we wouldn't mind losing. Uh, uh, we don't like to talk about it, but there are people we wouldn't mind being rid of. Uh, uh, this is not the case here. Asherah Hafta, the one whom you love. He's got to give up one whom he loves. And finally you hear his name, Isaac. It's a little bit like, I don't have a, like a magic marker thing here, do we, for this... Uh, I'm the old, I'm so low-tech, I'm into like blackboards and things. Is there one, is there something to write on here? I don't really need it. Oh, what is this thing? Oh, no, I don't know what that is. I'm very low-tech. Oh, thank you. Sure. I'm so low-tech, I only recently found out I could use my AM radio in the afternoon. <laughs> but it's a kind of step effect. Take your son, your only son, the one whom you love, Isaac. You've narrowed it down to one person, but there's, with each turn of the screw, the tension increases. Uh, it's sort of like, God forbid, this would happen. You would, someone would say to you, uh, oh, there's been an accident. Thank you. There's been an accident. Uh, there's been an accident uh, in your family. Uh, there's been a serious accident in your family. So-and-so is hurt, or so-and-so is dead. The uh, effect of hearing that goes far, beyond, far, it's far deeper than it would be if someone said, oh, so-and-so is hurt, so-and-so has, uh, has been killed. It's like that. Uh, the text begins slowly. The text has a slow narrative quality to it. Uh, we'll see at the end, it speeds up to a, an amazing degree. And then he says, and go to the land of Moriah. Now this go to, you can't really capture this in this translation, lech lecha. Get up and go, or go away, to the land of Moriah. And once before Abraham has been told, lech lecha, get up and go, at the start of his whole career there, in Genesis 12, 1. Get up and go, says, um, away from your land, from your uh, kinfolk, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. That's what it says at the beginning of Genesis 12, 1. The beginning of Abraham's uh, journey, Abraham's call here in 12, is a kind of sense in which it goes full circle. I was never much in geometry. Full circle uh, into Genesis 22. Uh, uh, that, those three expressions, from your land, from your kinfolk, from your father's house, your father's household, your smaller familial unit, your larger and your smaller familial unit, that kind of step effect is very similar to take your son, your only one, the one whom you love, Isaac. 
it's a similar sort of uh, sentence structure. And, a, and you get a sense in Genesis 12 of all Abraham is giving up. He's breaking with his homeland. He's breaking with his larger kin group. He's breaking with his smaller kin group to go to a place that God has never even told us. It's the land that I will show you. He heads off to Canaan. Only after he's in Canaan does God promise to give him Canaan. I think he went the wrong way. I think he should go farther south, end up in Arabia with his oil. But you can't relive those decisions. Uh, uh, but he doesn't know where he's going. I think it's, it's quite striking that the command to go precedes the description of where he's going. So here he's going to the land of Moriah, otherwise unknown in the Bible. Much later in in Second uh, uh, Chronicles, First Chronicles uh, three or so, something like that, you've got. Uh, Solomon building his temple on Mount Moriah. Not the land of Moriah, but Mount Moriah. And the, that seems to derive from a midrash, from a, an interpretive move, an imaginative interpretive move. We'll talk more about this in the second hour. In which the story of Abraham and Isaac here in Genesis 22 has become a kind of foundation legend. A, a, a heros logos, as I say in Greek, a, a, a story of the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. So when Solomon builds his temple in Jerusalem in the 10th century, some text much later than that is describing this as having been built on Mount Moriah. But other than those two cases, you never find any name of Moriah uh, in the, in the uh, Bible. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the heights that I will point out to you. This again uh, strongly parallels that Genesis 12.1. Uh, strongly parallels it. He doesn't put it out at first. He doesn't say, all right, here's the mountain to go to. He just says, go to the land of Moriah, wherever that is, and offer him up on one of the heights which I will point out to you. Again, he doesn't know exactly where he's going, yet he goes. He obeys and goes and starts on his journey without quite knowing where he's going. Of course, in Genesis 12, this is followed by the, the uh, promise that I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, all those who bless you will be blessed, the one who curses you will be cursed, and all the nations of the world will bless themselves by you, be blessed through you, however you translate that. A big crux among translators. But the point is, he gets the promise of the great nation here. Right? Get up and go, and I'll make you a great nation, I will make you a blessing, uh, you will, I will make you prosper, uh, etc. So he does it. Here it's almost, it's really the opposite of that in a sense. Get up and go, the place you haven't seen yet, but I'm going to point it out to you. And except now you don't hear anything about a blessing. You don't hear anything about a uh, becoming a great nation. What you hear is that the one from whom the great nation is going to descend, namely Isaac, is to be sacrificed, offered up as a burnt offering. A burnt offering, olah in Hebrew, is an offering in which nobody uh, uh, participates in the eating of this offering. Uh, it's completely uh, incinerated uh, for the sake of the de deity. They would take the skin off of this animal, who knows what, what it was with a human being, but with an animal you, you, you would flay it, take the skin off it, and uh, section it and offer it up on the altar uh, in, in pretty much in its entirety. I always like to write that on the board. You flay it. Because one time when I taught at Wellesley College, I had a student to my horror, you don't know what people are hearing when you're talking, uh, uh, if they're awake. And I had a student uh, write uh, that, uh, Make sure I spell this right. He, uh, Abraham was supposed to fillet. He was, he was going to fillet uh, Isaac, which I thought was. Uh, so I always make sure whenever I say that, ever since then, for 30 some years now, I've been writing that on the board. All right. Uh, uh, on one of the heights that I will point out to you. 
So you see, you have a kind of inverse of the beginning of Abraham's uh, trek here. You have a kind of inverse. Uh, uh, it's not simply promise, blessing, family, descendants. Now it's go take the descendant from whom the family and on whom the, the, the blessing is to rest, whom the family will descend, and on whom the blessing will rest, and, uh, and, and, and offer him up as a sacrifice. Verse 3, so early next morning Abraham saddled his ass and took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. Early next morning, does this mean it was a dream vision? Does this mean that this oracle came to him while he was asleep? Is he delaying? Uh, when, when does this come? Does this come late in the afternoon? You don't start out on a journey at 5 o'clock in the afternoon? Uh, what, what, what do you make of this early next morning? That early next morning also occurs when Abraham expels Ishmael and Hagar in the previous chapter, chapter 21. So it's a rare expression, but uh, it occurs in two successive chapters in two very similar situations. Okay, uh, I took two with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. Uh, who the two servants are? Again, Midrash, rabbinic interpretation will ask that question and often come to the answer that it is Ishmael and Eliezer. The two people that you would have thought would be his heir. Or I should say two of the three you would have thought would be his heir. The third might be Lot. They have to witness, presumably, this sacrifice. Very poignant. These two people who, in a sense, have been displaced by Isaac are now going to witness the, uh, the loss of Isaac. And then the question comes up, well, then who is the heir? Will they become the heir? But the text itself doesn't say that. It just has two boys, just two servants, when, a, uh, when the man goes out. And his son Isaac. Again, it's interesting. We know Isaac is his son. Uh, Notice how the text wants to put Isaac, the name Isaac, in a climactic position. Uh, uh, the one whom you love, Isaac, uh, and his son, Isaac. And then we start a new sentence. He split the wood for the burnt offering, and he set out for the place of which God had, had told him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place from afar. How did he know where, that it was the right place? God was supposed to tell him, supposed to show him. But nothing's happened here, but somehow he knows that. Verse 5, Then Abraham said to his servants, You stay here with the ass. The boy and I will go up there. Now this gets tricky into the translation. Nishtachavah, I translate as, We will prostrate ourselves, the nashuva alechem, and we will return to you. We will prostrate ourselves. And it gets very tricky points of Hebrew here. Is that we shall prostrate ourselves so that we may return to you? Or is it just, we'll pro let us prostrate ourselves and return to you? Or is it just a prediction, as this translation would seem to have it, we will prostrate ourselves and we will return to you? He doesn't say what he's going to do. He doesn't say, uh, I'm going to do a sacrifice. I'm, he doesn't say, I'm going to sacrifice Isaac. So, the, the, and furthermore, if you interpret it the way this translation reads here, the boy and I will go up there, we will prostrate ourselves, we will return to you, uh, except for the prostrating themselves. We don't mean anything about him prostrating himself. But, uh, except for that, that is what happens. He does return. We will return to you, meaning Isaac is not going to be sacrificed. So the great question is, is that true or is that... Not? Does Abraham believe that or not? You've got to remember something about Abraham. You have a big advantage over him. You've read Genesis 22. <laughs> Abraham didn't. When he got that morning in the... Uh, the uh, He found an Old Testament that only went through chapter 21. Right? He didn't know this. You and I know it's a test. 
He doesn't know it's a test. Uh, and uh, he doesn't know that they're going to return. So I like my teachers, I always like to say, well, uh, what should we call this? Is this, does he believe it or not believe it? Is it true? Is it true or is it false? And if you say it's true, why might it be true? Why would he, how would he know this? You could say it's a funny sort of truth. It's not a cognitive truth. He doesn't know it the way you know two plus two is four. But maybe he knows it through faith in the sense that this is what he hopes is true. This is what he trusts is the case. You know, someone says, you, know, you borrow something, says, I trust you will return this. You know, it's, a, it's not exactly cognitive. He doesn't know he would, he would return it. If he did, he wouldn't even tell you that. But on the other hand, uh, you still say it. Uh, is it that this is what he hopes will be true, that on basis of faith he'll, he'll uh, believe this? He's been told in the previous uh, chapter that his descendants, the, the, the people who make up the promised nation, will come through Isaac. Not through Ishmael, but through Isaac. Now, I don't know how many of you have studied genetics. How many have actually studied genetics here? Uh, but uh, one of the more recent finds of genetics is that infertility is hereditary. If your parents didn't have any children, you won't either. <laughs> and if, uh, if uh, Isaac dies uh, unmarried and uh, without descendants, as he is in this uh, chapter, then that whole promise is null and void. So maybe Abraham has such faith in the promise that he states as if it were fact what was in fact simply very much open to doubt. Right? Not all clear we will return to you. And that's a possibility, but that's what he hopes will be true, that's what he believes on the basis of what God has said to him will be true. I once had a student who was kind of into this game theory, economic, kind of odds, probability, sort of Las Vegas approach to things. And he said, well, uh, twice before, chapter 16 and chapter 21, uh, Hagar has been expelled with Ishmael. First time Ishmael is in utero, second time Ishmael is a, is a child, and both times an angel has intervened and Ishmael has been, been saved. So he probably figured that's the pattern here, I figured out the pattern now, I've broken the code, and that's what's going to happen here. Right? And uh, I must say that is one of the most deflating readings of just, it's hard to take a text as, as grand as this, and make it as prosaic as this kind of, uh, you know, a roll of the dice type calculation, but that guy actually succeeded in doing it. Uh, so so if, if he believes it, by true I mean that he believes it, it's true in terms of the narrative, but Abraham doesn't know, he hasn't read the end of Genesis 22. If it's true, it's, uh, if he believes it, maybe he believes on the basis of something other than just cognition. It's an interesting way of raising with your students the question of what does it mean to know something through faith, belief, in as opposed to belief that. Is there some sense in which the promises of God, and all promises, are in a different, a different category from simply knowing something that you learned in chemistry class or history class? Uh, I mean, there might be some deconstructionist type who would say even what you have in chemistry class or history class is not quite as secure uh, as people make it out to be. But certainly there's a, there, there's a different nature of knowing. If he knows, if he says this, on the basis of what? What sense does he know this to be true? Now, the other possibility is he doesn't think it's true. In which case, why does he say it? Why does he say, uh, we will return to you, if he knows perfectly well he's going to go up and sacrifice the boy? Why, why would that be the, the case? Well, uh, contrary to what a lot of people think, people did not go around generally in the ancient Near Eastern world sacrificing their children, right? Uh, that was a rare sort of thing at best, uh, and it was not the 
you know, uh, a certain kind of uh, demonization of Canaanite religion, Mesopotamian, Egyptian religion that one reads all the time, uh, which everybody's just sort of, everybody's just sort of sex crazed and violent, sort of like the average American undergraduate. And, and, and uh, uh, that really is not what it was all about. Uh, the idea of these two assistants, boys as they call them there, are going to be perfectly happy with this guy. Uh, uh, sacrificing his son. He said, you know, I'm, I'm going to go up to the top of the mountain now. You just stay down here. I'm going to go up to the top of the mountain. I'm going to uh, tie up Isaac. I'm going to build an altar, tie him up. I put a fire under the wood, uh, immolate him, and come back, and we'll, we'll put it be Miller time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they might have grabbed him and said, you're out of your mind. You're out of your in mind. You're crazy. You, you really, you got some, some you, the senility has really come on big time there. Of course, that raises the question of how old is he on the, on the, on the chronology, and we don't know whether the chronology of the genealogy should, should be leveled through and assumed to apply here, but, you know, he's well over 100. And sometimes people, uh, you know, well over 100 get what, what's uh, called in Yiddish, uh, a little, uh, you know, they're sort of, yeah, they lose uh, a little dementia sets in there. Uh, that might be a possibility. Another possibility is for the state, sake of his own sanity, his own resolve, let's put it that way, for the sake of his own resolve, does he really want to say it? We have all kinds of euphemisms we use. Oh, I lost my mother. That old, old brother takes the joke. Uh, one guy goes to the other and says, I lost my mother. He says, you look in the graveyard, I heard she died. Uh, uh, but why do we use euphemisms like that? We use euphemisms like that because we don't want to say to terminate the pregnancy. Or how about a woman's right to choose? To choose what? To own a gun? Uh, but uh, uh, you know, these, these, these terms don't really say the full thing. The whole, the whole statement isn't, isn't coming out there. Because uh, it's kind of gory and squeamish and you don't want to say it. Uh, so the, uh, maybe he doesn't want to articulate it for fear of articulating his own resolve will break. His emotion will overcome him. Maybe he is struggling to obey this extremely painful command. And as he struggles like that, he, uh, he, uh, he can't dare articulate the full gruesomeness of, uh, of what he's about to do. So one of the things I think is useful in teaching this text is putting up these options on the boards I can list here, and then say, well, which one is it? And of course, a lot of students will want one answer to be clear. They don't like the ambiguity. They don't like the gapping in the story. They want everything clear, everything spelled out. Uh, but in fact, then the question can be asked, well, if it isn't spelled out, what is gained in the process of reading? What reflection are we led to by the fact that this is not spelled out? And that's, a, that's a, 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 an interesting question. What do you make of the elusiveness of the text? What do you make of the way this text calls out, as the rabbis and Talmudic pair would say, calls out Dorsheni, interpret me? Because it's not so clearly interpreted. It's not so clear. And, and when you put this into a theological religious framework, the question would be asked, what's the nature of scripture? What's the nature of divine revelation? Is it everything spelled out, clear, no ambiguities, everything is 100% uh, crystal clear? Or is there something about that's elusive, that recedes from consciousness, that, that is never exhausted, that uh, opens itself up to a multiplicity of interpretations that refuses to be pinned down and put in a box? All right. By the way, another possibility I didn't mention, but I should, is uh, we will prostrate ourselves in supplication. That's an act of supplication. Prostrate yourselves so that we can return to you. Maybe he thinks he's going to go up there and plead with God to relent from this gruesome command to sacrifice his beloved son. Although, as the test goes on, uh, he doesn't, doesn't do that. You don't hear him prostrating himself and pleading with God. 
he sets up the uh, altar and he's got the knife in his hand all ready to, uh, to sacrifice uh, Isaac. Okay, verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and put it on his son Isaac. Put it on his son Isaac. And of course this will remind you, or ought to remind you, of Jesus carrying his own cross. That's why you might say, why not have the wood go to the top of the mountain on the donkey? Why not have the two servants carry the wood with the donkey up to the top of the mountain? Well, for one thing, from a narrative point of view, a biblical narrative likes to have exchanges between only two individuals. You don't see scenes of a lot of people in the Hebrew Bible. They tend, the dialogue tends to be exactly between two people. And it's a little bit like one of these Shakespeare plays where in modern times there will uh, you know, be courtiers or people, army people and so on the stage. There will be 30 people on the stage. But you just want the two protagonists. You just want whoever it is, Romeo and Juliet, talking to each other. So they'll shine a spotlight only on those two. Similarly, uh, to have the donkey up there and the two boys and so forth, while this intense, uh, wrenching drama is taking place, would detract from the intensity of it. It would detract from the narrative tension of it. So he leaves them at the bottom, but then he puts the wood on Isaac. He puts the wood on Isaac, so Isaac has an intimate association with his own death here. Very similar, by the way, to chapter 21, the previous chapter, when uh, it looks as though, again, there are translational problems here too, it looks as though Abraham takes uh, Ishmael, who seems to be a, a toddler or a baby, puts him on his mother Hagar's shoulder together with a loaf of bread and one skin of water and sends them out into the desert. Now where are they going? Are they going to Egypt? i got news for you. You go from Beersheba to Egypt, you're going to need more than one skin of water. Right? Uh, and uh, the, the bread won't be good either, especially on a low-carb diet. <laughs> so, uh, so, I mean, and, and the water is what gives out. What nearly kills Ishmael is the lack of water. He's, you see what I'm saying? The water and the baby are on her shoulder together, just as the wood is on the back of, of Isaac. All right, continuing verse 6. He himself took the firestone and the knife. That refers to like a firestone is like a match. It's not a tire. And the knife... And the two of them walked on together. <coughs> the two of them walked together. Yachdav picks up the Yachidacha. Yachidacha, your favorite son up above. It's a similar root. It's also the root for the word one. The two of them walked as one. They are totally resolved. There's no tension between them here. They're walking together. Of course, that raises the question, does Isaac know what Abraham is about to do? If he knows what's going on here, then... The two of them walked on together is an extremely powerful statement. If Isaac is, is old enough to know what's happening, then we have here a, a, uh, uh, already an idea of, a, of Isaac as a kind of martyr, as someone who willingly gives up his life for the sake of God. A person who willingly engages in a self-sacrifice. But we don't know how old Isaac is. Years ago, I had a, a man in my class who was a retired orthopedist and uh, developed a heart condition. Actually, for a while, he was the longest living uh, heart transplant recipient. And uh, I asked the class, I said, uh, how old is Isaac here? And that's a very good question to ask people reading, especially when you first said, how old is Isaac here? Because the answer is nobody knows. Right? The answer is nobody knows. Um, are we dealing with a toddler? Are we dealing with a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a ten-year-old? Are we dealing with, as some of the rabbinic interpretations have it, a 37-year-old? That's the most common rabbinic interpretation. You know why? Because 
those of you with a background on math will know that chapter 22 is followed by chapter 23. <laughs> now, uh, in chapter 23, Sarah, his mother, dies. She dies at the age of 127. She's 90 when he's born. So assuming that 23 follows immediately, sequentially, 22, which is a big assumption, but assuming that, then he's 37. Right? He's 37 years old. So, uh, but we don't know that. We don't know how old he is. The text is much easier to interpret, much more simple-minded, or much more direct, if we just knew the age of this guy, but we don't know. So I turned to this orthopedist, and I said to him, someone said, well, uh, he is able to carry the wood on his shoulder. All right, so he's not six months. But how old is he? So I said to this guy, I said, Dr. So-and-so, I said, uh, you're a medical man. How old do you have to be? It's a fascinating kind of physics question. How old do you have to be to be able to carry the weight of wood sufficient to immolate your own body? <laughs> <laughs> to which he, without skinny beat, said three or four years. I'm thinking to myself, wait, you packing up medical school? <laughs> there was no hesitation there. He didn't do any calculations. I mean, you, know, you realize, of course, the bigger your body gets, the more you can carry. But, the, but also, the more you need to carry. And that's a, kind of, that's a difficult physics question there. Uh, and uh, he knew right away that's what it was. I still remember that guy. He told me, he, I asked him what his medical specialty was. He said orthopedics. He says, you know what they say about orthopedists? To be an orthopedist, you have to be as strong as an ox and twice as smart. <laughs> I still remember his telling me that. I don't know if it's true, but that's what he told me. Uh, so anyway, uh, so here, here's why I bring this up. Verse 7. Then Isaac said to his father, Avi, my father, or daddy. One word. Similar to one word that Isaac, that God says to Abraham. Abraham. One word Abraham answers. Hineni. Here I am. How we translate that? He says one word to him. Daddy. Now I want to ask something. They've been going here for some time now, right? Uh, uh, they've been going for at least three days. You mean Isaac hasn't said anything to Abraham in those three days? Not one word has come up? Uh, I don't know if you've ever traveled with a little kid. <laughs> or even a 37-year-old. They, uh, they have a lot of things to say. Daddy, there's a Dairy Queen. Can we stop at Dairy Queen, Daddy? Daddy, I have to go to the bathroom, Daddy. Daddy, I have to go to the bathroom again. Right? Uh, nothing like that. But of course, the biblical text is not interested in this kind of pedestrian, realistic narrative. It's interested in the moments of greatest tension. Uh, and so uh, all we hear about here is, Daddy, my father, he answered, yes, my son, except that's a terrible translation. It's Hineni again. How are you translating Hineni? Hineni Bini. Yes, my son, here I am, my son, at your service, my son, ready, my son, your, my son. how are you translating that? It's the same word. He answers Isaac with the same word he answered God. Uh, and he said, here are the fire stone and the wood, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? Now, what do you make of that? If he's three years old, it's an age-appropriate question. Right? If he's 37 years old, or even six or eight years old, I think there's a problem here. He hasn't noticed there's no sheep. We have everything we need. We forgot the, the sacrificial animal. Right? He hasn't noticed that when he's six years old or 37 years old? Uh, what are we to make of that? If he's six years old or 10 or 37 years old, and he says this, 37 is unlikely in the biblical text, but uh, if, that, if, that, if that's the case, he's old enough to know, then why does he say that? Or is he also proceeding by indirection, that he doesn't want to say directly to, to 
to uh, Abraham, uh, what are we going to do here? Right? Or I know what you're going to do here, or I'm ready to be sacrificed. He simply says, well, where is the sheep? Okay, then Abraham says, uh, God will see to the sheep for his burnt offering, my son. Again, my son in the climatic position, as it is there in verse 7, yes, my son, as it is in verse 6, uh, on his son Isaac. God will see to the sheep for his burnt offering, my son. Now you could say that's what turns out. What turns out to happen is God, through the angel, calls off the sacrifice. And Abraham looks up, and he sees a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And he, and he sacrifices the ram, tachat beno, in place of his son, or as a substitute, excuse me, a substitute for his son. But Abraham has not read Genesis 22. So is he expressing his hope, his faith, that it would work out that way? And it does. Or... Is he putting his son off because he figures if Isaac, if I tell him what I really do, here's what's going to happen. I'm glad you noticed the absence of the sheep. Uh, this was by design. I, I really want you to know I'm not demented. I did not uh, forget the sheep. What I plan to do is to sacrifice you and immolate you because God told me to. Right? Any more questions? Uh, do you need another Dairy Queen? Uh, now, is it possible that Isaac would then go running down the mountain, his little propeller cap in the wind as he screams running down the mountain and reports child abuse? What would happen if he told him that? Is Isaac on board with this? You, only you could know that is if you know how old Isaac is and what his conception of this is. But that is exactly open to doubt here. We just don't know that. It's another one of those gaps, one of those tantalizing gaps. Um, uh, and... Uh, but at the end, you have that exact same phrase. The end of verse 8, the exact same phrase you have at the end of verse 6. And the two of them walked on together. Whatever the meaning of this strange, cryptic exchange is, whatever the reason is that Abraham says God will see to the sheep for his burnt offering, my son, whatever the reason that is, whether he really believes it, hopes it's true, believes it on faith to be true, or is afraid to acknowledge the truth even to himself to say, well, I'm going to slaughter you, or afraid to say this to Isaac who, who won't agree. Whatever the reason is, the two of them are as one at the end. It's interesting how that expression, the two of them walked on together, frames this exchange. Okay, verse 8, excuse me, verse 9. They arrived at the place at which God had told him. How do, how do we know? I mean, has God told him again? He said, the place I'm going to show you, he hasn't shown it to him as far as we know. Abraham built an altar there. Now look how fast the narrative speeds up. Slowly, especially that first paragraph, very slow. Now look, there's something like five verbs here uh, in short order. Abraham built an altar there. He laid out the wood. He bound his son Isaac. He laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Bind him. Why does he tie him up? In Jewish tradition, this is called the binding of Isaac. Akedah, the binding of Isaac. The Hebrew word for that is Akedah. I'll spell it like this. Akedah. The binding, it's called the binding. The binding of Isaac. In Christian tradition, it tends to be called the sacrifice of Isaac. Well, the Isaac part and the of part are correct. But as a plain sense understanding of Genesis 22, it's odd to say the sacrifice of Isaac when he wasn't sacrificed. I think there you have a kind of back formation or retrojection of, of a Christian typology Isaac equals Jesus, Abraham equals uh, God. Uh, I think that that's one of the things that's going on there. Uh, but why does he tie him up? If you look in Leviticus 1, when you uh, sacrifice, uh, have an olah, a burnt offering of, of, a, of a bull, it's not, uh, it's not tied up. Right? In other words, is that because, is that, was that the, the general modus operandi for a human sacrifice? 
Uh, is he afraid? Is he afraid that Isaac is going to uh, bolt? Isaac is going to run? Uh, why does he tie it up? Could he, could he tie it up against his will? Uh, you know, how old is Isaac again? This, this old man's ever able to tie him up against his will? Or is Isaac willing uh, uh, to, to do this? Is he a willing participant, a kind of type of the martyr, uh, not to, uh, putting his own self-preservation first, but putting obedience to the divine command above his own self-preservation? Okay. Uh, and Abraham picked up his knife to slay his son. Now, I've made up my own midrash there. That just at the moment when Abraham has picked up his knife to slay his son, he has this... this uh, Knife in his in his hand. So would someone like to volunteer to be Isaac in this? In this, uh, do I have a volunteer? Anybody would like to be Isaac? I'll demonstrate this. Uh, no, nobody. I don't have any volunteers here. Nobody. You, you be Isaac. All right. All right. Just just sit in this chair right here. So at that very moment, just put your head back, please. <laughs> we'll pretend this is a very sharp knife. And just that moment, he lifts up the knife, and what happens? His cell phone goes off. The person is calling for Isaac. He says, oh, I'm sorry. He seems to be tied up at the moment. <laughs> Thank you. You did a good job there. And notice that she's still alive. Uh, I had this kid in class uh, about, he was a graduate student about three years ago. And I, I, I used my, where is I used to, a pen. And I just picked up a pen and, and did that. Where is that? Yeah, I can't even find a pen. Uh, I just used this pen. I said, put your head back. I sort of pull his hair a little bit, just taking your neck back there, and he started flinching. I said, what is this flinching business? He says, it's involuntary. Of course, we were then just about to read a midrash about how Isaac asks Abraham to tie him up, not because he's not on board, but because he is on board, but it's afraid that if he has involuntary flinching, and it's not a clean cut, it won't be appropriate to invalidate the sacrifice. That would be a heck of a thing. That happened, right? He has a jagged cut because he's, 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 he's having like a seizure while this is going on. And, and uh, so then there's Isaac dead and the sacrifice didn't count. That's the worst of all possible worlds. Uh, so anyway, uh, verse uh, 11, Then an angel of the Lord called him from heaven. Rare, you think angels are all in heaven? Rarely in the Bible are they in heaven. But they are in chapter 21 when the angel calls to Hagar. And she opens her eyes and sees the well from which she draws water to save her son Ishmael in the previous chapter. The angel calls him from heaven. And it says, Abraham, Abraham, says it twice. Uh, and he answered, Hineni, here I am. The third time he said that. Same thing he says to God, he says to Isaac, he says to the angel, God ordering the sacrifice. Isaac inquiring, and the angel calling off the sacrifice in the name of God. Each time he responds with the same word. You get an image of him as constantly attentive to the divine command. Constantly attentive to the divine command in all these different circumstances. Uh, he's as attentive to the divine command when it works to his favor as when it works to his disfavor. He answered, here I am. And he said, do not raise your hand against the boy or do anything to him. Why the repetition? Because that's typical of Hebrew, especially poetry, but even prose. This might even be poetry, that verse. Parallelism. Don't raise your hand against the boy. Don't strike the boy. Don't do anything to him. To saying the same thing over again. The rabbis of the Talmud, when they do Midrash, they... Uh, they uh, don't like that idea of things just being parallel, just repeating. God doesn't stutter. He doesn't even repeat himself. There must be some significant difference. What they have Abraham doing is saying, you know, I, uh, I, uh, he's so psyched up. It's like being so psyched up for a test. He doesn't want to show up there and they call it off. Oh, you know, I know you know this stuff. Go home. You want to demonstrate. You want to do it. So uh, Abraham says to him, 
can I at least nick him, draw a little blood? <laughs> Nothing? I mean, that's, that's what, and in some, in some texts he does nick him and draw a little blood. That's, what, that's why they say don't, uh, don't do anything to him. Wait, you nicked him? No, don't do anything to him, right? Don't, don't kill him, which is what the first thing says, and don't do anything to him. All right. Um, uh, for now, I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your favorite one, from me. Picking up that language of the initial command, your son, your favorite one. But now it's you have not withheld your son, your favorite one. Uh, so what, uh, what is this a test? It's common to say this is a test of Abraham's uh, uh, love of God or his faith in God. And that becomes possible all, all, uh, already in antiquity. That notion of Abraham as the paragon of the love of God or the paragon of faith in God is uh, as early as the book of Jubilees that I mentioned, which imports that prologue to Job into the beginning of the Akedah. As early as that, the question is, what does Abraham love more, his son or God? Uh, but in the Genesis 22 itself, you're nothing directly about faith in God, nothing directly about love in God, of God. What you hear in Genesis 22 is... Uh, uh, obedience, the fear of God meaning doing God's will. Uh, in this case, that's what it means. Uh, and attentiveness, attentiveness to the divine command. Uh, now I know that you fear God. You've demonstrated it to me. You've demonstrated it. Since you have not withheld your son, your favorite one from me, you would have failed the test if you had withheld your son. And uh, a lot of people say, well, the idea of this text is to show us that God does not want child sacrifice. I don't know. Uh, it's a funny way of showing you don't want child sacrifice to order one and say, now I know you fear me because you're willing to do it. It's odd to reward someone and bless him for his willingness to do something. And let's say the whole point of the test is you're not supposed to do it. Seems, seems, that seems to me to be simplistic. He says, uh, uh, verse 13, when Abraham looked up, his eye fell upon a ram. He just happened to see a ram all of a sudden uh, caught in the thicket by its horns. Later Jewish folklore tradition will come nuts with this. Well, whose ram was this? Right? Why does this ram just suddenly show up there? Where was it? Why didn't he see it before? And here's a, here is a good Talmudic question. Uh, if you would, let's assume you decide you want to sacrifice a schnauzer. Right? <laughs> Can you just walk along the street, you see a schnauzer walk along, I just take it and just kill it? Can you do that? I mean, it might belong to somebody. What if, uh, what if this had happened? Uh, Abraham picks up this, uh, this ram, sacrifices, and then a farmer comes running out with a shotgun. What are you doing killing my ram? Right? I mean, what, what, what is that ram? What is it doing there? Why, why is it just there at that moment? God is, and God never actually tells Abraham to sacrifice it, but he does. It's almost as though the ritual event has to be carried out. You can't stop in the middle there. You can't just stop in the middle and call it off. Right? And this is, this is actually characteristic of a number of ritual systems. I don't know if that's true in, in Roman Catholicism or not. I bet it is. You can't just in the middle of the Mass that the, uh, the uh, priest says, you know, I'd rather be watching a football game and just like in the middle just walk home. Right? I suspect that doesn't work. And so he's got to do something, but he's just been told not to do anything to his son. So you could say, well, providentially there's a ram there. One of the medieval Jewish legends says that the ram's name was Isaac. And he, Abraham, uh, uh, this was the bellwether of Abraham's flock. Bellwether meaning the, the, lead, the lead ram, you know, like the alpha male or whatever uh, of his flock. Uh, and uh, he named him Isaac after his son because he had such regard for that, uh, that 
sheep and named them after his son. Uh, and so it says, let Isaac for Isaac come. <coughs> in other words, that in a sense he did sacrifice Isaac. The sheep named Isaac, who is not a replacement for, but a substitute for. You might say he sacrifices Isaac in the form of the a little bit like sacrificing Jesus in the form of bread and wine. Uh, and that's a very interesting thing. You could read a book in the New Testament, like the book of Revelation, and you would think the name of the man was Lamb. You would think that was the name of the Lamb. You think Jesus' name is Lamb. It's very interesting that the name of the sheep is Isaac, according to this legend. You wonder how far back it goes. It only shows up in medieval sources, but is it an older one that just only happens to be collected and published in, in sources that, that survive from the Middle Ages? But anyway, that's what he does. He uh, offers them up. Verse 14, Abraham named that site Adonai Yireh, which means the Lord will see, which picks up, so far as I can see, or somehow relates to verse 8, God will see, using a different word, God will see, to the sheep for his burnt offering, the Lord will see, whence the present saying, on the mountain of the Lord, Bahar Hashem Yireh, on the mountain of the Lord, he is seen, he appears, there is vision, there's a, there's a saying that in the author's world is well known, and he's going to give you the origin of it. The only problem here is it's unclear what the saying means or how it connects to this story, but you can see how someone could think this was a dedication story, a foundation legend, for the temple in Jerusalem on the Har Habayat, the Temple Mount, on the mountain of the Lord, which usually the Bible refers to the mountain in Jerusalem where, where uh, uh, the, the temple stood, uh, the, the Temple Mount, uh, he is seen, he appears, whatever. Verse 15, the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven. Very rare to see this. It looks redactional, but uh, as Dr. Bernard G. Prusak pointed out, I don't think that the fact something is redactional means you disregard it. It just means it's redactional. In other words, the use of historical criticism to disable texts strikes me as misguided. I think what you have in Genesis is 22, 15 through 18, the second angelic address, is a, um, a, uh, the earliest interpretation of the Akedah. A British scholar named Walter Moberly has used that term. The earliest interpretation of the Akedah. What is the Akedah? Now in Genesis 12, Abraham gets this call, this phenomenal promise, and his promises land, and on the basis of what? Bupkis, nothing. What has he done? Zero, zilch, nada. Uh, uh, it, it, I always like to put it this way in my classes. Of course, it's totally lost. I really have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, but I always say that the story of Abraham begins in a Lutheran mode and ends up in a Catholic mode. Of course, these students never heard of Lutheran or Catholic. They probably are talking about two brands of commodes. I don't know what they think I'm talking about. But it, it, it's, 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 it seems to be pure grace here in chapter 12. Abraham has not done anything. Later, tradition will fill that in and make Abraham a discoverer of God. Abraham as a, as a philosopher who saw through astrology. Abraham as a man who saw that there's something more than the material world and therefore idolatry, iconography was inappropriate to render the invisible God. All that develops in the Second Temple and Rabbinic Judaism becomes very strong in medieval Judaism and in Islam. Uh, but uh, you don't see that in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, it comes out of nowhere. All of a sudden, he picks out this one guy and tells him he's going to do all this stuff for him. But by the end of the story, look at what happens. When you go full circle from there to chapter 22, look what happens here. 22, 16. This is what the angel says the second time. 
By myself I swear, the Lord declares. Which is what you have to do when you're God. They used to say about Henry Kissinger, he's the only person who calls dial a prayer and asks if there are any messages. Right? <laughs> when you're God, you swear by yourself. I mean, you know. Uh, uh, the Lord declares, Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your favorite one, that picks up what we've already just looked at in the first angelic address, right? I will bestow my blessing upon you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven. That picks up Genesis 15, one of the promises to Abraham. And the sands on the seashore, that picks up Genesis 13, another metaphor in the promise to Abraham that, we've already, that already appears in Genesis. And your descendants shall seize the gates of their foes. I'll talk about that in a minute. All the nations of the earth shall bless themselves by your descendants because you have obeyed my command. Now you see the same promises that you see in chapter 12 are repeated here in 22, 15 through 18. Except you can't call it pure grace anymore. You can't say it's just a bolt out of the blue coming from nowhere. Instead, it's a consequence of the Akedah. The Akedah, the binding of Isaac, Abraham's exemplary obedience demonstrated in the, in the binding of Isaac, is now uh, the basis for those promises that have been there all along. But now the promises are given a new foundation in Abraham's obedience. Because you were willing to do this, you, uh, you uh, received those blessings that we've already, uh, uh, you've already been given. Uh, so it's very close here in 22, 15 through 18 to the initial Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Very, very close in phrasing. It picks up some of the other metaphors of sands and seashore, stars and the heavens and so forth. But it has a new foundation now. It's a consequence of this exemplary act of obedience on the part of uh, Abraham. And that's a very important theology, element of theology in, uh, in uh, rabbinic Judaism and in Christianity as well. Take a look sometime at Romans 5 through 12 through 21 where um, uh, there's a deed that Jesus does. That deed, is not, you can't say it's pure grace in that Lutheran type of way of saying it. Not pure grace. The grace is God applies the deed of Jesus to people who act like Adam. People who don't act like Jesus receive the benefits of what Jesus did, uh, even though they're acting like Adam, who represents uh, uh, rebellion, sin, uh, disobedience, and death. But they receive, however you translate that, exoneration, exculpation, justification, and eternal life because of the graciousness of God who applies the deed. There was one deed of Adam and one deed of Jesus. The one deed of Jesus overwhelmed the one deed of Adam and then God applies that to all these, so to speak, descendants of Jesus. All those who are in Jesus, even though they're not acting any better necessarily than they did before. So you can't say it's no deed. There's a deed. There's an act of, of uh, obedience. I always forget there's two Greek words there. Paroakoe and hupakoe. Paroakoe and I always forget which one is obedience, which one is disobedience. I guess uh, Parakwe, I guess, is the disobedience. I guess the disobedience of Adam and the obedience of Jesus. Uh, very similar theology. Uh, uh, now, uh, the, the, uh, the deed of Abraham is what grants uh, a, a continuation and blessing and so forth uh, to his descendants. Then we have verse 19. Abraham then returned to his servants and they return, they depart together, Yachdav, which you also saw in 6 and 8, they two walked on together. They departed together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. And students always ask me, and you can ask your students, wait a minute, what about Isaac? Is it over-interpreting this to say Isaac isn't there? 
Well, this brings up interesting questions of different levels of interpretation. What do you mean when you say over-interpreting? As the plain sense or natural sense of Genesis 22, I think it's over-interpreting it to draw attention to the absence of Isaac. Because the test isn't about Isaac. The story ends where it begins. Verse 1, sometime afterwards God put Abraham to the test. Verse 19, Abraham then returned to his servants. Abraham goes out, Abraham comes back. It sounds crude to put this it this way, but Isaac is a kind of prop here. It's Abraham's test, not Isaac's test. Later on, it becomes Isaac's test. I see he becomes a prototype of the martyr. Okay, you interpret him as 37 years old. You know, he really is being tested. Uh, but, the, but the text itself is not interested so much in Isaac. It's interested in Abraham. And so Abraham went out, Abraham went back. Uh, but of course, that gap, the failure to mention Isaac, then generates many legends and interpretations. Now, Isaac was, in fact, sacrificed and resurrected. Uh, that uh, that he, uh, Abraham sent him off to yeshiva, to a house of higher rabbinic learning. <laughs> sent him off to the yeshiva of Shem Ever, uh, these two descendants of, uh, of Noah. Uh, I always say that that's the equivalent of sacrificing somebody. Sent him off to the seminary. Uh, uh, the, um, and, but it's an interesting sort of question there. All right, now... One thing you have in biblical narrative is anyone can see, I don't, I don't feel I've done justice to it, but anyone can see that this text is full of tension, it's wrenching, it's difficult, it's painful. Uh, uh, and one of the things you see in, in the Bible is often these, these very wrenching, dramatic, painful narratives are not back-to-back. -back. There's a kind of something in between, not comic relief, but something that dissipates some of the tension in between. And lists and genealogies can do that. So right after this text, we have a genealogy in verse 20. Sometime later, Abraham was told, Milka too has borne children to your brother Nahor. Your one surviving brother Nahor has children by Milka. Who is his firstborn, and Boo is his brother. I think he was a big drinker. And Kimuel, the father of Aaron. Anything, right? Uh, well, maybe we're just dissipating the tension, because the next thing we're going to read is the death of Sarah. Do you really want those two highly intense narratives right next to each other? Or do you not want to have some buffering going on between them? I think you, in biblical narrative, I think you want to have buffering between them. But I maintain the buffering is a little more complicated than you think. Uh, his brother, Abraham's brother, has now has these children. He has eight children by his primary wife, Milka, and four children by his uh, secondary wife, uh, Ruma. Uh, for a total of how many? Twelve. Twelve. I can see people in the Twelve. So all of a sudden you're hearing about a twelve-tribe league where there are eight by the primary wife and four by the secondary wife. If you read the book of Genesis, think of Jacob. When the people Israel comes fully into existence, the promised people comes into existence, Jacob has eight sons by his primary wives, Rachel and Leah, and a total of eight. And he has four by the secondary wives, the so-called concubines, Bill and Zilpah. I mean, it's an interesting sort of thing. Is that, is that just coincidence? Maybe, but it's, I think to the careful reader it signals something. But there's something else being signaled here. There's only one person of the next generation, the generation beyond Nahor's children. In other words, the only, there's only one grand-nephew or grand-niece, whatever the term is, great-nephew, great-niece, of Abraham that's mentioned in this text. We only go to the children of Nahor, right? You've got Abraham and Nahor, and then Nahor has all these children, right? He's all these children. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 
But then we hear about somebody from the next generation. We hear that this one person has a daughter named Rebecca. Other than the wife in the secondary wife, that's the only woman's name we have here. What's she doing there? What is she doing there? Well, uh, Isaac, uh, as my high school biology teacher said, it takes two to tango. And uh, Isaac is not going to have children without Rebecca cloning, not yet having been invented. Uh, so uh, uh, it's interesting that at the end of this story, as the promise is renewed and put on a new foundation, we hear something else we haven't known yet. We now hear the first mention of the woman that you will know if you've read later in Genesis will turn out to be Isaac's wife, his destined wife. Uh, and I don't think that's, uh, that's uh, a coincidence. That was Isaac marries uh, a cousin. Um, and when you read up above in verse 17, the end of 17, and your descendants shall seize the gates of their foes. That's the promise uh, to Abraham in the second angelic address. I don't know if anyone notices this, but in Genesis 24, verse 60, when Rebecca's family is sending her off to go meet Isaac when she hasn't met, to marry him, that's part of the blessing. She says, your descendants shall seize the gates of their foes. Almost the identical language. Two different words for foes. Oivav as opposed to sonav. But it's the same, it's the same uh, uh, blessing, the same words otherwise. And it's not a common blessing. So you, you wonder if there isn't already some notion here of the next of moving on to the next generation. And after the Akedah, this is what happens with Abraham. 23, he arranges a burial place for uh, uh, Sarah. 24, he arranges uh, a, a uh, uh, marriage for Isaac. And 25, he dies. It's all winding down after this, this Akedah. All right, now what I want to do, I guess I'll just keep talking. When we take a break, nobody will come back. Uh, especially since I won't. What I thought I would do is bring up some questions of how this text can be useful in a teaching situation. To undergraduates, or graduates, especially in this kind of large, great books program point of view. The idea is not to get into historical and philological detail. Uh, which most people in biblical studies in graduate schools have learned to do, and then they go off and teach and have no idea what to do in colleges and seminaries where people aren't particularly interested in that proto-Lucianic uh, revision of this text. Uh, but the larger existential questions, one I've already raised, which is the question of um, the gapping, the, the um, gaps, the, uh, the elusiveness of the text, the fact that there are these places where we just don't know the answer. Why does he say that? Does he believe it? Does he not believe it? Uh, how old is Isaac? Why does Isaac say that? What does he mean? Does Isaac know what's happening or does he not know what's happening? What difference does it make? Uh, a number of places like that. Another is the intertextuality, the rich allusions to chapter 12, to chapter 13, the sands and the seashore, 15, the stars of the heavens, a uh, uh, rich uh, allusiveness uh, forward to Rebecca, forward to the blessing of Rebecca in 24, verse 60, etc. Uh, you read this text much more carefully uh, in connection with the rest of Genesis. You see patterns emerging as a much richer experience. But then, of course, there are the big philosophical questions you can bring up. Now, here's a quote I have, a rather extensive quote, from Immanuel Kant. He wrote a, um, a book that sounds like it was uh, my life, uh, but actually it isn't. It's called The Conflict of the Faculties. 
and uh, dealing with how you would organize a university or enlightenment principles. Uh, and here's what Kant says there. He says, for he's not a great lover of the idea of revealed religion, as you know. He says, for if God should really speak to man, man could still never know that it was God speaking. It is quite impossible for man to apprehend the infinite by his senses, distinguish it from sensible beings, and recognize it as such. But in some cases, man can be sure the voice he hears is not God's. For if the voice commands him to do something contrary to the moral law, then no matter how majestic the apparition may be, and no matter how it may seem to surpass the whole of nature, he must consider it an illusion. Any voice, any vision, no matter how majestic, that tells you to violate the moral law, it's an illusion. Get thee to a psychiatrist. Do not, uh, do not listen to this voice. So you can imagine with Kant, who had a good biblical foundation, by the way, knew his Bible uh, very well. Uh, you can imagine what Kant thought of the Akedah. He says this. This is a note. Here's a note. Uh, Bob the page where he writes this. He says, we can use as an example the myth that the sacrifice that Abraham is going to make by butchering and burning his only son at God's command. The poor child, without knowing it, even brought the wood for the fire. Abraham should have replied to this supposedly divine voice. This is what Abraham should have said. That I ought to kill my good son is quite certain. No, should be. That I ought not to kill my good son is quite certain. But that you, but that you, that you, this apparition, are God, of that I'm not certain, and never can be, not even if this voice rings down to me from the visible heavens. So on Kantian terms, Abraham failed the test miserably, didn't pass the test, and the fact that the biblical text thinks he passed it and rewards him for passing it, that just shows you how primitive the biblical text is. God commands him to do something immoral, to butcher, to murder his son, well, this God, I mean, God doesn't do that. You hear a voice in your head. So you hear some crazy voice in your head telling you to do something. The world is full of crazy people out there with voices hearing, telling them to do things. And the question is, uh, how, do, how does one discern what's the real voice of God? In his view, the real voice of God is a voice that simply seconds the moral law that's known independently of apparitions and auditions and oracles. So uh, this is a, a, wonderful, uh, a wonderful text to bring up. Uh, to students, well, is the, what do you think? Is, is Abraham functioning morally or immorally here? Did Abraham pass the test or fail the test? Um, but I'm going to make it a little more complicated. Of course, there's the famous retort to this, uh, which you all know, which is Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling. Now, Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling uh, is a book in which Kierkegaard wants to validate what Kant dismisses, namely the intense personal relationship with God which does not simply reduce to adherence to the moral law. The intense particularity of the relationship with God, which cannot simply be exhausted by being a moral person. Right? All those undergraduates that say, oh, why do I have to have religion, why do this and the other? Isn't that just to be a good person? That would make, uh, to use the Yiddish expression, that would make Kierkegaard blech. Brech, excuse me, brech, would make him vomit. Couldn't stand that vomit. Uh, but Kant would say, yeah, that's right. And so that's an interesting little question. And, and, and to Kierkegaard, there's something beyond the ethical. The highest level is not the ethical. There is a religious level that, in which the ethical, according to Kierkegaard, is suspended. See, Kierkegaard shares Kant's presupposition much more than he most could realize. 
He, is, he shares the, uh, the presupposition that what Abraham is commanded to do is immoral. And it violates moral law. And it's unethical. He simply wants to say, well, there are things that are more than ethics. There is such a thing as an ungeneralizable norm where God says to do something. I can't adhere, I can't propound a universal norm, a generalization that can cover it. It's unique between me and God. It's unique between Abraham and God. So he's the single one. He's the lonely one. Abraham, according to Kierkegaard, is the original lonely man of faith who can't explain. Why does he not tell the boys, or for that matter, Sarah, what he's about to do? Because he can't explain it. He can't defend it. He can't. There isn't any universal norm to which he can appeal. But the particular is in some sense more powerful and more real than the universal. And it would be dissipated, its force would be dissipated if he were to come up with some uh, uh, universal generalizability as to why uh, he should do this. Uh, now, so it's useful to set this thing up, I find, uh, uh, as Kant versus uh, Kierkegaard. And is there, in fact, such a thing as a teleological suspension of the ethical? Uh, if, if our duties are purely uh, subsumed by the category of universal, rational, demonstrable ethics, what do we know this religion stuff for? We make the fact that these religions, these revealed religions, say quite the opposite. So you can bring the issue up. But let me tell you why I think that that's a that's a useful it's useful to use this text to provoke Socratically that big issue. But let me tell you why, as a biblical student of the Bible, I find this not not there's something wrong with that way of thinking. And um, I hinted a minute ago as to what it is. I think Kierkegaard buys in too readily to Kant's presupposition that what's being tested here in a sense. Abraham's faith understood as something opposed to ethics, that he's being commanded to do something unethical, and the only way to defend him is to say, yeah, well, there's times when the, when the ethic, when ethics are suspended, not for some ethical reason, but some other teleological reason that goes beyond ethics. And here's why I think this gets very, very uh, tricky. Is Abraham commanded here, to use Kant's term, is he actually commanded to... Um, butcher and burn his son. Uh, he says that I ought not to kill my good son is quite certain. Now, this gets us a very interesting question. Um, in biblical Hebrew, and in the Hebrew Bible in general, there's a rather discreet terminology for killing, including murdering, and for sacrificing. There is a discreet terminology, and not 100% I'm not saying there's never an overlap, but there's a discrete terminology. It, one thing I've wondered for years, and uh, I recently read a book that helped me with this, which I'll refer to in a moment. Uh, did they think they were killing an animal when they sacrificed it? Is that what they thought they were doing? We moderns live in a world where killing and violence is all around us. And uh, sacrifice is not all around us. We use sacrifice only in a very metaphorical way. Oh, I sacrificed to put my kids through, through college, right? Uh, well, I don't know, where's the sheep? Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, we use sacrifice to mean, you know, we sort of gave up things. We sort of, we sort of subordinated our own self-interest to some other goal. We use the term sacrifice. It's a little, it's a little uh, 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 metaphorical. Uh, uh, my stepson was working in a laboratory, and he said when they, when they would uh, kill, 
the laboratory mice or whatever, I think in one case it was a pig, that they were working on these medical experiments. The term they use in this stuff is sacrifice. They sacrificed this animal. Very interesting. Uh, but again, the assumption is there's some ethical norm, and we're, we're sort of proceeding towards the ethical norm. We have to do something we wouldn't otherwise do, but we have to do it to, for the greater ethical norm. Uh, there's a book by a woman named Catherine McClimmon. I guess you pronounce it McClimmon or McClimmon, or what did I just do with this thing? Uh, where is that book here? Called Beyond Sacred Violence. Uh, it came out uh, last summer. A little book about 150 pages, uh, uh, Johns Hopkins University Press, where she talks about sacrifice in Judaism and in Hinduism. And she makes an interesting point. She said, uh, really, the killing is not the essence of the sacrifice. There are sacrifices that don't involve killing. Libations, you don't kill anything. Right? Vegetable offerings, you don't kill anything. Right? Um, there, are, there are many types of sacrifice that don't involve any sort of killing. Now, to me, I don't know if she goes quite this far. I would go a step further and ask, therefore, those that do involve killing, what we call killing, is that what they perceive themselves to be doing? You can read in Genesis, excuse me, Leviticus 1, the accounts of, uh, of how to do an olah, a burnt offering, and pretty much miss that the animal dies. The key thing is not that the animal is going to die. The key thing there is not death. The key thing there is, is something else. It's a gift, it's a presentation, whatever, whatever sacrifice is, uh, simply to put it in this coverall category, under this coverall category of killing, butchering, uh, or this even larger category, violence, that makes it familiar. There's violence, violence on the streets. Uh, but is that what they, in fact, are doing in terms of the culture itself? I don't blame Kant and Kierkegaard for reading it in terms of their own culture and making their own, uh, their own philosophical points. But uh, surely historical criticism and the recovery of the ancient Near Eastern world and the, and, and, uh, the discipline of comparative religious studies ought to raise in our minds the question of whether this, this statement that Abraham is ordered to, to kill, as though the key thing is, is, uh, is simply in the same category as a murder, whether that, in fact, is the case. Notice, does Genesis 22 think that the essence of the issue is Abraham is being told to do something immoral? And so he's being uh, rewarded for choosing obedience over morality? I don't think so. I don't think they thought of sacrifice as being in the category of morality and immorality. I don't think that's the. I don't think that's what they think is is uh, going on there. In in uh, in this culture, in the Western culture, I think because of Christianity, uh, the idea is very widespread that sacrifice has to do with death, especially bloodshed. That the essence of it is blood, and it has to do with the expiation of guilt. I wish I had a dollar for every time I have a student who assumes that a sacrifice comes in expiation for guilt. It has to do with guilt. And, and, and how to atone for guilt. Well, some sacrifices in the Hebrew Bible are in that category. Some aren't. Some require what we would call a killing. Some don't. Some have blood manipulation. Some don't. Some are brought out of joy and thanksgiving. Some are brought because God is thought to be the owner of the, uh, of the first fruits, the first crop. Uh, I think that's what the, the uh, sacrifice that's commanded here is all about firstborn son is supposed to be sacrificed. Is that a killing? This is a very harder thing to get, a much harder thing to get a hold of. 
what actually is this act? And are we understanding correctly if we simply use it as a parable for this larger issue of the limits of the moral law and the, uh, the possibility of religion transcending or even violating moral law? Perfectly legitimate discussion to have. I think it fits more awkwardly with Genesis 22 than Immanuel Kant and Sorin and Kierkegaard thought. But what do they know? Um, of course, when you go into historians of uh, religion, especially the literary types today, if you're a literary type, you know, I majored in English myself in college. My father told me, that's a good idea. You speak it well already. Uh, <laughs> but, the, uh, but, you know, these people who, for whom sacrifice is basically about violence, about scapegoating, Renée Girard, her book, Catherine McClendon's book, uh, Beyond Sacred Violence, of course, that's that whole category of sacred violence uh, that derives from people like uh, Girard. It's interesting how much, and here I think, I, I think students and faculty in a Catholic university ought to appreciate this point, maybe they don't. Uh, uh, but um, it's interesting uh, how much uh, people, uh, no, I lost my th uh, thought, uh, what was I yakking on about? I'll think of it in a minute. Scapegoating. Uh, no, I forget the scapegoating. I can't remember what it was. Uh, but it was something, it was, it was very profound. <laughs> uh, that was one of those gapping. You know, <laughs> it's, it's long enough, you uh, have no idea what you just said. Um, but uh, it's interesting how, how, how eager people are to, uh, oh, I know what I was going to say. How eager people are to, to ask about two things about sacrifice. One is they think you can't understand it unless you know how it began. I don't know how language began. That means we can't talk. Right? It's by the time you get to this, the Hebrew Bible, the sacrifice is a well-established institution. It's not controversial. Even the prophets, in my opinion, are not against the sacrifice. Uh, they are against certain people with certain behavior engaging in sacrifices, but they're not against sacrifice. E.P. Sanders, the famous New Testament scholar at uh, Duke, says something that is only a slight exaggeration. He says, in the Roman world, he says, Religion was sacrificed. Yeah, a little over, exaggeration, little exaggeration there. But there's a point to it. It's, very, it's a very controversial category in modern times. In antiquity, it was not a controversial category. So when moderns want to explain it, they have to come up with these, they have to show there's some pathological thing that lies at the basis of this. If you're engaging in sacrifice, there's something you've messed up. Something your sex life, your life with your father, you got messed up somewhere, get thee to the couch, get this thing straightened out, Prozac, something will help, just, but there's something wrong with you. It's interesting how easy, that was my point. It is that moderns will assume that sacrifice is inherently pathological. There are a lot of different activities. Are, are, uh, we, we lump into this category of sacrifice. They have different purposes, different goals, different uh, natures. The assumption that we're dealing with a need to kill and shed blood in expiation of sin or whatever, not, not the most helpful way, I think, to approach a text like this. Um, um, anyway, minimally, all this sort of thing I've been uh, rambling about for the last half hour uh, ought to provoke a good discussion of sacrifice and the difference between ancient religion and, mod and the modern secular or liberal ethos, the modern post-enlightenment ethos. I would think in a Catholic university uh, where, you know, 80% of your students are Catholic and some percentage of them go to Mass, where so the idea of sacrifice is a living notion liturgically, I would think that would be a very interesting sort of issue to raise. 
what is sacrifice? What do you make of the, the uh, uh, reflexive tendency to interpret it uh, negatively? What, what, what distortions, or not distortions, what, what direction, what coloration of the reading of the Hebrew Bible, or text like Genesis 22, comes about by trying to read it through that, that Christian lens? That is also an interesting topic. Another interesting issue that can come up here is uh, the issue of chosenness and election. Uh, Isaac, after all, is the patriarch of the Jewish people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, there's something very uh, non-egalitarian about this religion. Isaac in Genesis is chosen, not Ishmael. Uh, Jacob is chosen in the next generation, not uh, Edom. Um, then the question comes up, and I think this text can help elucidate it, what's the nature of chosenness? Does, cho is, does chosenness only work to the advantage of the chosen and only to the disadvantage of the unchosen? If so, why does Isaac have to endure this? That's a weird way to be chosen, to have to go through this sort of thing. Right? You could ask God, choose somebody else. Right? Uh, uh, what is one to make this? It's a complicated set of relationships there. Throw Ishmael into the mix and it becomes even more complicated. Is Ishmael rejected? Is Ishmael unchosen? Is he the anti-chosen? He shows up in chapter 25, and in that word, Ishmael and Isaac bury their father Abraham. Uh, is, uh, what's the connection to Ishmael? If you bring in Surah 37 of the Quran, it becomes even more interesting. Because in Surah 37 of the Quran, around, I don't know, verse 100, somewhere around that area, you have the story of the binding of the sun, and the sun is unnamed. The sun is unnamed. Now, I have numerous Muslim students who tell me, well, the sun was Ishmael. Well, in the first couple centuries of Islam, Quranic interpreters divided almost evenly over whether this was, uh, this, whether this took place in Palestine and the sun was Isaac, or in Arabia and the sun was Ishmael. Uh, it, that's a, a tradition of interpretation, as far as I know, I'm not an Islamicist, I've gotten lost in Islam notion that it, it was uh, Isaac. So the average Muslim walking down the street is not grossly ignorant by any means, but he or she tells you, oh no, it was Ishmael, that's their tradition, that's what they think. That became a tradition only at a certain point. The sun is unnamed. It's an interesting kind of question to read that section of the Quran and then ask, well, which sun is this? Which sun is this? And uh, uh, But then the question comes up with the relationship of Ishmael and Isaac. And Isaac. And that comes up even in the Bible. Uh, Ishmael also is promised that he'll be the father of a great nation. He's also the, the father of the 12 tribe of me. He also is rescued by an angel calling from heaven. It looks like he's going to die. Very close narrative uh, between Ishmael and, uh, and Isaac, which is Genesis 21 and Genesis 22. And there's something else that's a little tricky. I don't know quite what to make of this, but I might as well mention it. You have... Uh, Uh, you have Isaac mentioned here in verse 6 of Genesis 22, and in verse 7 of Genesis 22, it's clear the son is Isaac. But then after that, you don't hear Isaac's name. Uh, anyway, excuse me, verse 9, he bound the son Isaac. After that, you don't hear his name. Uh, he laid him on the altar. Uh, he said, do not raise your hand against the boy. Uh, You've not withheld your son. Uh, he offered it in place of his son. It's funny the name of Isaac disappears there. You know, you, know, you, you, you could get into some 
difficult speculations about the prehistory of this narrative, different from the manifest text, let's say, to Genesis 22, the prehistory, perhaps oral, perhaps literary prehistory of this text. And ask, was it always about Ishmael? Excuse me, was it always about Isaac? Was it ever about Ishmael? Why does why Isaac's name sort of disappear there at a certain point? What's that all about? Why aren't we naming him after a certain point? Is that, is that even significant? Uh, I, don't, uh, I don't know. Um, so in a certain sense, if you take a look at these texts, at this text, and then you look at classical Jewish interpretations, rabbinic interpretations, Talmudic interpretations from the first couple centuries of the Christian era, you look at Christian interpretations, including Paul and Romans 8.32 and so forth, uh, where uh, uh, God is revisioned as an Abraham figure, God is reconceived in the image of Abraham. Uh, he did not spare his only begotten son and so forth, using the verb phedomai in Greek, which is the Greek equivalent of this chasach, you did not withhold your son. Right? Uh, where, in a sense, uh, Jesus, there's the Jesus-Isaac connection was very strong throughout the New Testament. And then you, and then that generates in Romans 8, uh, or so, uh, a revisioning of Abraham, of, of God has become an Abraham figure, not withholding his son, and that then resulting in all kinds of blessings. You take that and go through the whole uh, history of Christian exegesis, then you do Surah 37 uh, in the Quran and interpretations of that, you can come into a rich play of, of uh, traditions and interpretations and so on and so on, uh, further complicated by the fact that in Islam, Genesis 22 was not scripture. In Islam, it was clear that it was always, uh, it, it becomes clear at a certain point that it was always Ishmael. And when people, once, that, once that possibility that was Isaac becomes completely eliminated, then you raise the question, have the Jews falsified the scripture, the original Quranic truth, and presenting you with their Bible? Do Christians and Jews, do they falsify the arbitrary tahrif, the falsification of the scriptures by Jews and Christians, when it was originally much more uh, like uh, the Quran originally was, in fact, Quranic truth? You get to some interesting comparative religion issues, but not as broad phenomenological generalizations, but in terms of specific narrative, how the narrative is, adopt, is adapted and appropriated to different traditions to authorize uh, different things. All right, what I thought I would finally do here, maybe then we can have uh, questions or I'll hang around afterwards. I thought I would look at a few of these uh, texts. I've been referring to Midrash here. I've been referring to uh, the peculiar mode of interpretation of the uh, Hebrew Bible that you have in rabbinic Judaism, among these figures known as rabbis, living mostly in the land of Israel, uh, in uh, you know, starting who knows when, first century through fifth, sixth century and beyond into the Middle Ages, and also to a lesser extent in Babylonia. Plenty of them in Babylonia. Fewer midrashim coming from Babylonia for whatever reason. All right. One thing you have to say about Midrash is it's not plain sense interpretation. It's not what the rabbis call pshat, plain sense interpretation. Whatever you mean by sensus literalis, literal sense, historical grammatical sense, whatever you mean by those complicated terms, that ain't what Midrash is. When I teach Midrash, I always have these students raising their hand and telling me, well, that's not the plain sense of the text. So I tell them, in other words, you think this Midrash is Midrash? And they say, yes. I say, you're right. Now, it's harder to get into that mode of interpretation. It tends to make connections based on theological similarities, similar, also phonological similarities, two words sound alike. 
two verses that are very far apart from each other can be brought into connection with each other based on a similarity of sounds of the words. In that sense, it's more like poetry than it's like prose. And it's more like a poem than it is like plain sense exegesis. There, in about 30 seconds, I've tried to compress the essence of Midrash, but I've not done much of a job. Uh, but here's an example. Take a look here at the bottom page one. We're just trying to exegete. Sometime afterward, God put Abraham to the test. We're trying to exegete that. that what, 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 when this would have been read is at a time when in a, in a synagogue in the land of Israel, maybe, in, I don't know, third uh, century, fourth century, uh, the, the reading, the lection would have been just Genesis 22. The century would have been just Genesis 22 in that Palestinian triangle cycle. And so we're trying to get down to the first word, uh, first word in Genesis 22.1. Somebody is getting up, a preacher is getting up in the synagogue before the ritual chanting of that chapter. And he's introducing it. But the way you introduce Boring, I went to tears the way you've been born to tears this afternoon. Uh, the way you do it is different. The way he, he would do it is to feed and reason up a chain of Midrashic connections from one verse to another for the verse that's very far afield till you get down to the beginning. And when you get down to the beginning, you get down to this first verse of John 22, you sit down. And Usually the verses chosen are not from the Pentateuch, not from the first five books of Moses. They are from elsewhere in the Bible, often very far. Maybe they're from Job, maybe they're from Daniel, something far away. And the idea, you say, boy, is he crazy? What does that have to do with the Akedah? But the whole point of the Midrashic creativity is to draw connections between these disparate verses so as to make a particular theological point. What I say is that in rabbinic culture, the uh, equivalent of... Uh, uh, of uh, a brick from which you're going to build a building is a, a biblical verse. And the idea is to put one verse next to another verse and you build this little building. Now the building is made up of biblical verses. But it may not say what the Bible says. If you're taking verses from elsewhere and interpret them in a particular way so as to bring them together, you see, the, the building blocks of rabbinic theology is, are biblical verses, but biblical, rabbinic theology is not biblical theology. There's some overlaps, but it's not biblical theology. All right, that's background to this. Now let's go to page two. And so we're trying to get God put Abraham to the test. The Hebrew word put to the test is nisah. It is written, you have given a banner to them that fear you that it may be displayed because of the truth. Okay? You've given a banner. You've given a banner to them that fear thee. So where are we starting? Way far away. We're trying... Psalm 60, verse 6. Somehow we've got to get from there down to Genesis 22. One, you might say they have nothing to do with each other. A banner to them, the fear that it might be displayed because of the truth. But again, in the Hebrew, you can already hear one of those phonetic correspondences here. Banner, nace, a banner, a standard, a flag. To them that fear you, we'll get to that in a moment, that it may be displayed, hit those says, and it might flutter like a banner because of the truth. So what's the connection here? The connection is this mace and hits no says similar sounds and s sounds and God tested in this song. Right? A lot of ends 
and S's here, okay? You might say, well, those words are unrelated. That's not good scientific philology, to which I say, no, it's not good scientific philology. It's Midrash. The key thing to remember about Midrash is, it's Midrash. <laughs> People forget that. It's kind of like a subtle point, not self-evident. It's kind of counterintuitive. I find students are very, very counterintuitive then to find out that Midrash is Midrash. All right. So what's the connection? Here's what it means. This means trial upon trial. That's also a word from this word. Nisayon. Nisayon achar nisayon. Trial upon trial. Uh, greatness after greatness. Gidalon achar gidalon. We're here on the top of page two. Uh, greatness after greatness. It's pretty interesting. Trial after trial, greatness after greatness. And if somehow the trial results in greatness, the test results in greatness. In order to try them, the nasot, again this word, to try them in this world, to test them in this world, and exalt them in the world like a ship's ensign, like a banner, naced. You see what I'm saying? You've got a, a, you've got a ship that you can identify. And the dignity of that ship comes from this banner, this flag that it's flying. But what, what raises that flag up there? The assumption seems to be what raises the flag is, in fact, the, um, the trials, the testing. And what's its purpose? I think what they're asking here is, we have this all out What's the point of this? It says, because of the truth, Sela. So what's the truth? You're testing in order to raise them up like a banner, in order to establish a truth. What is the truth? It says that the equity of God's justice may be verified, may be proven true in the world. There's a pun on this verified, and the word they're translating as truth from Psalm 60, verse 6. The equity of God's justice. So why might you think God is unjust? Look at this next statement. Thus if one says, this is, so to speak, the heretical position. This is the heterodox position. This is the position you want to know how to refute. If someone says, whom he wishes to enrich, whomever God wishes to enrich, he enriches. To impoverish, he impoverishes. Whom he desires, he makes a king. When he wished, he made Abraham wealthy. When he wished, he made him a king. Again, the uh, notion that Abraham was a king, which we don't have to go into. What's that position? It's sort of like a hyper-Calvinist position. It's like, uh, you know, it's like double predestination or something. God does what he damn well wants to do. He wants to make you rich, he makes you rich. He wants to make you a poor, he makes you poor. It doesn't make any difference. He wants to make you king, he'll make you king. He can make anybody a king. He wants to make you a king, he can make Moshe Puppet a king, Moshe Puppet's a king. Whoever it is, he makes a king. God does what he wants. There's no justice to it. There's no equity there. Uh, God did what he wanted. In other words, why does God pick Abraham? Why not his brother Nahor? Why does God pick Isaac, not Ishmael? Why, why does he do that? If you like it, what do you call it? Grace. If you don't like it, what do you call it? Arbitrariness. Right? It's arbitrary. To God just did it. Right? You read some of these extreme Calvinist uh, writers. I don't know that Calvin himself does this or not. My impression is he does whatever I say in class, somebody always tells me I'm wrong. Uh, I think every time in every class I want to talk about it. Uh, but the uh, but you know it's God just sort of decides in advance who is going to be saved, who's penitent independently of their deeds. Sometimes when I'm driving home, I turn on the radio and I listen to uh, some of these uh, religious uh, radio stations with these uh, Protestant minister types and so on on there. And uh, uh, you hear them saying things like, you can't move yourself one iota closer to salvation by your deeds. 
if you think Mother Teresa is in heaven because of anything she did, you're wrong. So the question is, hey, Reverend, why is she there if she's there? Why? God just decided he's going to do that. Well, that lady's going to go to heaven. I don't damn what she did, right? Now she's up there next to, I don't know who, Adolf Hitler, somebody else, they, the deeds don't count, right? Now, that's a position that the rabbis find, that you might call extreme grace theology, slash a belief in the completely arbitrary deity, uh, that is something the rabbis find to be offensive to their sense of justice. On the other hand, why is Abraham chosen? Why is Abraham chosen here in Genesis 12, verse 12? Genesis 12, why is he chosen? What had he done? Nothing. Partly rabbinic culture fills in that gap by saying, oh no, he discovered God, he saw through idolatry, he, he, uh, he, uh, one, one text, he burns down the, uh, the house of the idols and so forth, right? He was a great scientist, he was a great philosopher, and God answered, God responded to him. He, he discovered God and God answered. He knocked on God's door and God came to the door. Right? That, that way it's not just totally arbitrary. That's one way of answering it. This is another way of answering it. Uh, someone says that to you. Uh, you can answer him and say, we're in the middle here at the top of page 2, and say, can you do what Abraham did? Now, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. That's not the end of, can you do what Abraham did? I mean, he's strong, firm, and Howard was he when he had a son. <laughs> I, think, I think his son Abraham was 84 when he had a child. Uh, but that's not, well, that's not the great feat of, of, of Abraham, F-E-A-T. Uh, it says, and yet, after all this pain, because he's promised he'll have this son when he's 75, He's 100 when that son is born. <coughs> uh, he must have looked like an idiot to everybody around him. Right? And, and uh, nonetheless, he proceeds with this. And yet, at the end, he, uh, after all this pain, it was said to him, take your son, your favorite one, the one whom you love, Isaac, and incinerate him. Yet he did not refuse. See, there was this great foundational act, which was the Akedah, which was the binding of uh, uh, Isaac. The great foundational act, which was Abraham's obedience, shows that Abraham is not just your average Joe Blow, your average Beryl, Schmeryl, Moshe Puppet, whoever it is out there in the street, who, if God said it to him, would say, no, I'm not doing it. Not because Kant or Kierkegaard thinks it's unethical, but because, hey, this is my, this is my promised son. This is what, what I want. Now, they wouldn't be willing to part with the son whom they love. They wouldn't be willing to do it in, a, in answer to a divine command. So, uh, Hence, you have given a banner to them that fear you that it may be displayed. So is written, God put Abraham to the test. You've given a banner that it may be displayed. God put Abraham to the test. Now the question is, there's one other element there. To them that fear you. See, I maintain a good midrash is one that establishes multiple connections between the verses that are brought into conjunction with each other. It's not just as this phonological, this phonetic similarity between base, hypnosis, and but also, whom does he give the banner to? He gives the banner to, the, to them that fear you, Libreacha. Maybe in their understanding of Hebrew grammar, it's singular to the one that fears you. And what does Abraham, what does God, what does the angel say to Abraham? You don't have to do the second. No, God says, now I know that you fear me. Who is the archetypical fearer of God who's proven the fact that he fears God? Abraham. So this verse in their mind is commenting on the, on the story of the Akedah. Psalms is commenting on Genesis 22. Because to the rabbis, Genesis 22 is written before the book of Psalms. The Torah is older than the book of Psalms, and the Psalms of Psalms, and to some degree, is a kind of commentary. If you know how to interpret it right, in their view, it's a kind of commentary on Genesis 22. Very different way historical critical scholars see this, chronologically. But that's how they would see it. This is 
this is Psalm 60 enables you to make a comment on Genesis 22, but you're raising a question that Genesis 22 directly doesn't raise. Namely, what's the fairness and equity of God in choosing Abraham? And the answer is, the Akedah demonstrates that. You had to demonstrate to the world that God is not simply arbitrary, that Abraham did something that other people would not have done. Alright, now let's go on to number three here. Middle of page two. When Abraham looked up, his eye fell upon a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. There's a Hebrew word there, achar, which nobody knows what to do with. We won't go into it now. But it seems awkward there. And actually, some text-critical variants don't have uh, achar usually translated as after. Some of them actually have a similar word, different. I only have one word, one letter that looks almost the same. Echad, a certain ram. Right? In other words, it's not even clear that word should be there. So they ask, what does Ahar mean? It doesn't seem exactly fit there. Said Rabbi Yudan, after all that happened, Israel still fall in the clutches of sin and in consequence become the victims of persecution. The Jews sin and they become the victims of persecution, yet they will ultimately be redeemed by the ram's horn, as it says, the Lord will blow the horn. Very rich weave of ideas here. Uh, Ahar means after... In a, in a very form, Acharit, it means the end, the end time, the latter days, the eschatological period, it might suggest. Uh, Israel, sin, fallen punches of sin, become victims of persecution, but the persecution of the Jews is not the last word. Ultimately, in the end time, they will be redeemed by, by the Lord God blowing the horn, Zechariah 9.14. And what's the horn have to do with anything? Well, this ram is caught in the thicket by its horn. The word for horn is not the same word uh, as uh, Zechariah 9, 14, but it's the same idea as the ram's horn. The shofar of Genesis 9, uh, Zechariah 9, 14, the ram's horn, it, the sounding of that uh, uh, heralds redemption. And so this ram being caught in the thicket by its horns, uh, that symbolizes uh, the fate of Israel, and yet that horn also, the horn of the Akedah, the ram in the Akedah, symbolizes the future redemption. Rabbi Judah, instead of Rabbi Simon, interpreted at the end of, or after, given that we're after all generations, Israel will fall into clutches of sin and be the victims of persecution. Yet eventually they will be redeemed by the ram's horn. As it says, the Lord God will blow the horn. Rabbi Hanina, son of Rabbi Isaac, said, Throughout the year, Israel are in sin's clutches. The Jews are sinning all year long and led astray by their troubles. But on New Year, on Rosh Hashanah, when the shofar of the ram's horn is blown, they take the shofar of the ram's horn and blow on it, and eventually they will be redeemed by the ram's horn. So that blowing of the shofar is not just awakened redemption and, and so forth, and a kind of dry run for the eschatological Yom Adin day of, of, uh, of judgment but it also is, uh, is pre-enacting a salvation, a, a rescue, a deliverance, a redemption that occurs at the end of time when God takes that horn and blows it. Rabbi Abba, Rabbi Papi, and uh, Rabbi Joshua of Sichlin, and Rabbi Levi's name, these are third century in the land of Israel, said, because the patriarch of Abraham saw the ram extricate itself from one thing and go and become entangled in another, I can't explain this to you, but the ahar there, I think, is suggesting to them, ahar meaning other. They went from one thicket, they went from one thicket, and they got caught in another thicket. The Holy One, blessed be he, said to him, 
So will your children, Abraham, so will your children be entangled in countries, changing from Babylon to Media, from Media to Greece, and from Greece to Edom. Uh, Edom being Rome. They will eventually be redeemed by the ram's horn, as it is written, uh, and the Lord uh, God will blow the horn, and the Lord will, of hosts will defend them. So what we have here, in other words, is taking the Akedah and reading it symbolically as a text about the fate of the Jewish people over the centuries, which might look like kind of a, a gruesome uh, bloodstain to history, but eventuates in redemption. And the horn of the ram has symbolized the horn that God blows at that moment of eschatological uh, redemption. So this makes the Akedah more than just a foundation story for the, the people of Israel, the blessings on the people of Israel. It also has this eschatological dimension, this, this looking forward uh, to the end times, all based on this one curious word, Achar, which can have eschatological meanings in other contexts, but seems uh, somewhat out of place in Genesis 22, 13. All right, finally, uh, text uh, four. Uh, out of hundreds of possible Midrashim that might have been chosen, I just took these three to show you, and um, most of them deal with high, deep theological themes, high, deep uh, ethical, spiritual themes. But this one, I think, has a slightly different take on it. Uh, verse 4. Uh, this is when God tells Abraham, don't do anything to your son. Sacrifice is off. Uh, Abraham wondered, surely you too indulge in prevarication. You're always changing your mind, off again, on again, on again, off again. Yesterday you said, for an Isaac shall seed be called to you. In other words, you're going to have Isaac, your descendants will come through Isaac. You then retracted and said, take your son and sacrifice him. Right? You changed your mind. Well, now you bid me, do not raise your hand against the boy. First you tell me I'm going to have descendants through Isaac. Then you tell me sacrifice Isaac. Then we don't sacrifice Isaac. Is this a Meshuggah God or what? This is a nut. This is a nutcase. God can't make up his mind what he's what he, he, he what, what he's going to do here. Uh, said the Holy One, blessed be He to him. O Abraham, my covenant I will not profane. That's from Psalm eighty-nine thirty-five. Does anybody know what the context of that is? Again, we're, we're going to the Book of Psalms. We're going to a, 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 a chapter of Psalms that doesn't mention Abraham, who's rarely mentioned in the Psalms at all. We're saying it has to with Abraham. This is the covenant with David. In Psalm 89, the Davidic king, the king from the house of David, is in terrible straits and has suffered enormous defeats. And, and in effect, there is asking God, where is all this covenant business? Where is this covenant faithfulness? Where is it now? And God answers and says, my covenant I will not profane. The covenant with David is eternal. So I, I said, I'm making this covenant with you, Abraham. My covenant I will not profane. Uh, and I will establish my covenant with Isaac. Look what they're doing there. They're interweaving two biblical texts. Two interweaving Psalm 89 and Genesis what, 21 and 22. First we have Psalm 89. Uh, my covenant I will not profane. I will establish my covenant with Isaac. Alright? So, you know, my covenant I will not profane. I will establish my covenant with Isaac. 
when I bade you, when I told you, take your son, I, okay, so now we're back to Genesis 22, right? Take your son. When I told you that, uh, I will not alter what has gone out of my lips. Now we do the other half of Psalm 89:35. See, we're, we're alternating. We're creating a new narrative out of two biblical verses that are being interwoven. Uh, I will not alter what's gone out of my lips. Psalm 89:35. Did I tell you slaughter him? No. I said, Ha'alehu, make him go up. The sacrifice called Olah, the burnt offering, is literally from a root meaning to go up. Ha'alehu Olah, the plain sense level means make him go up as a burnt offering. Offer him up totally as a burnt offering. That's what it means at the plain sense level. There's no question about that. But if you want to be literal about it, I never said to you, Shochtehu, I never said uh, slaughter him. I said, Ha'alehu, make him go up. You've taken him up, now take him down. <laughs> the whole point is you, you're the one guy there with the knife and the sacrifice and the, and the fire and all this stuff. I never told you that. I just said, Ha'alehu, make him go up. I'm not, I haven't retracted anything. I haven't changed. I'm not prevaricating. I'm, 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 I've been insisting all along. I said, take him up there. All right? He's up there. I'll take him down. All right, what's the problem here? And so here's Abraham with his knife. It makes a comic uh, uh, moment there in this, high, this, this, this text of high seriousness. But it probably also reflects at some level a uh, certain rabbinic in some circles, uh, maybe a little, uh, uh, what should I say, discomfort with this text. That that that, uh, that the beloved son Isaac is going to be sacrificed. Uh, do you, would God really command a thing like that? Especially since He's already promised covenantally that Abraham will have descendants through Isaac. Of course, to care to guard that that contradiction, that's the key thing to the meaning of the whole uh, text. But here it, it has a different meaning. So I think when you go into the history of interpretation, uh, this type of material, Christian material, Muslim material. Not to mention modern historical critical material, you can see why this text uh, provokes uh, 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 and raises some of the greatest issues that uh, exist in uh, in the whole uh, history of religion and in any sort of uh, confrontation with the depths of of existence. In my opinion, there are very few texts that could be more appropriate for a kind of great books or classical liberal arts program than this. So now I have. Uh, Three minutes for questions. <laughs> I deliberately was drawing this out so that I wouldn't have to answer any questions. Uh, but I will entertain questions. Not answer, but I'll entertain. <laughs> yes, uh, Dr. Bernard and G. I have a question about what you said about the, the plain sense of 2219. Yeah. Um, when Abraham returns, mm -hmm. translation to a servant, that far together. Yeah. I mean, if Abraham you read really it, the question is, here's the, here's the question, is it over-reading, and, and, and what, in what mode of interpretation would it be over-reading, what mode of interpretation would not be over-reading? I myself think that Genesis 22 is a test of Abraham. He goes out and he comes back. I think that's, I think, I think in plain sense that's true, but when you raise is a possibility, then the question comes up, well, where is Isaac? 
what, what, where, is, where is Isaac? Once one rules out the later traditions that have him being slaughtered and resurrected, because he's around in, in chapter 24. If you say there was a stage in which Isaac was in fact sacrificed, you got to get it back. But you don't have the resurrection of the dead in Genesis. No, 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 so. I don't mean sacrifices he killed. I mean he sacrifices the relationship. Where's Isaac? He's still in the mouth. He's still going to his dad. Yeah, you, yeah, a lot of people would read it that way. No, that, that's true. I, I have a strong dislike of that reading, but it may uh, have some deep psychoanalytic source that can't be shared publicly. Uh, uh, I, I have students in class say to me, and your comments is more perceptive than this, but the same is, uh, I, I picked this up in some of these schlock books that are out there, and that's why I consider any book that I didn't write. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, that uh, Abraham and Isaac never spoke again after this. Because this, this is this Abraham, Isaac as the traumatized child with the abusive father. And that Sarah dies of shock. And Sarah, Sarah dies of shock, which is a, a, a little more rational. But that, that they never spoke again, to which I always ask this question. When did they ever speak before? <laughs> the only time Abraham and Isaac ever speak in Genesis is in this chapter. In verses 17, is the only time the two of them ever speak. They never speak otherwise. But you see, what I'm always worried about, I always like, the one reason I study ancient texts is, I believe the purpose, one purpose of education is to blow the minds of modern people reading it by showing the difference between presuppositions and its worldview from our instinctive one. Our instinctive one, all day, you can pick up the paper, I guarantee you pick up the Philadelphia Inquirer, you can see, you know, violent father abuses children, shoots children, kills children, gets drunk, throws out a window or something. Uh, so, so I find people want to say, oh, that's what this is all about. The idea that this is a loving father obeying the divine commandments, that's a very hard, that's a much harder text for moderns to absorb, partly because of people like Kant saying, what do you mean God so, which is a, God wishes always come through his own psychic structure, and so how, how can he say it's, it's God's wishes rather than his own desires. Uh, I, uh, I think that's overreading at this level, but, but I don't mean to put down your suggestion, because I think there can be other levels of interpretation, other modes, other frames or contexts of interpretation in which uh, this isn't overreading. Now, one thing a discussion like this has, one thing it does is to problematize this whole concept of plain sense. In other words, when is, uh, what, what, how does one know something is the plain sense? Uh, Frank Kermode should know this. How does one know there's a plain sense of things? It's just instinctive, it's intuitive. Uh, you know, I think I, I smuggled a term in and said, well, it's not the natural sense of the narrative. But of course, maybe to you it is natural. So we get some difficult uh, questions there. But I, I would worry about trying to put Abraham in the mode of the abusive father, therefore making something very strange and unfamiliar, making it very familiar and as, as ordinary as today's newspaper. Uh, and I think, I think the statement that he's estranged and that Sarah's estranged from him, and Sarah drops dead because of and Sarah is, is, is never talked to Abraham again, and she's horrified. Uh, again, there are midrashim that move in that direction. Uh, but all, what all that does is to try to make us think more like moderns, more like Kant saying there's something profoundly wrong with what Abraham did, which makes it, uh, which is easier, more natural to us than the, than the much more difficult thing, uh, task of trying to figure out how anybody could think there was something right with what Abraham did. Yes, question. But there is, I mean, as you were saying, that uh, even in Abraham's own world or the author's own world, it's not as though child sacrifice is something that everybody, you know, thinks is right. wonderful. Right. Um, and I mean, I think you, you do kind of see that. I mean, 
that servants, for example, kind of like, why are they even there in the first place? But it's like they're there only to be left behind so yeah. he can go up and do this and be told this kind of, you know, circumlocution about what he's going to do right. and then go up. And, but and the other thing is, I, you know, from a gender perspective, you know, sacrifice is all kind of tied up with inheritance and fathers. Maybe. I mean, people like Nancy J. And the fact that Sarah's totally absent is if Sarah's, I mean, I mean, Sarah is totally, I mean, again, I don't mean to defend the text. I'm simply trying to locate myself in the narrative world and the culture that it represents, where the, the, uh, the father, the obligation to sacrifice the son, to redeem the son, this is a, a father's uh, task. Right. It's a father's task. In other words, maybe it shouldn't be, but that's, in fact, the case. So you could say, well, why didn't he ask Sarah? Kierkegaard has the answer to that. His answer is because there's no way he can explain why he was doing it. If there's no generalization, there's no general rule that covers this situation. It's, it's a unique, special relation of Abraham to God. Uh, I think the reason is simply that it's not part of the social reality. It's simply not part of the social reality. Yeah. So you could, I'm not saying you couldn't make it a feminist critique of the world out of which this text derives. But I think it's important to, to interpret the text before you do that in terms of the world out of which it derives and not a world that we might it wish. It's kind of like an interesting light on the world from which it derives. Yeah, I don't know. Like, that's, I agree with that. You're pointedly excluding women from this picture. I, I, I think by modern standards, they're pointedly excluded. I think in antiquity, nobody would have thought that. That's a difference. As we say, well, where's the mother? Well, but right? even, I mean, as you said, that uh, Midrash kind of, isn't there a Midrash that works? Uh, yeah. Isaac is saying to Abraham, does my mother know what you're doing? No, I'll tell you what it is. Uh, here's the Midrash I know. That, uh, the, a devil figure, Samael, who is a devil, his name means uh, a poison of God, shows up and tries to convince Abraham not to do it. Because being a devil figure, he wants to prevent the Jews from observing the commandments. And he doesn't get anywhere with Abraham. Then he turns to Isaac and he says, shall all those tunics that your mother lovingly wove for you be the inheritance of the hated one of her house, Ishmael. Sarah has demanded that Ishmael be expelled. Abraham does not want to expel Ishmael. He's not happy about this. Sarah insists, and God backs up Sarah and says, do that. Now are all those, uh, uh, each of their inheritance, she doesn't, and Sarah does not want Ishmael uh, to, to cut into Isaac's inheritance. That's why Ishmael is expelled in Genesis 21. Now, so all those uh, tunics that, that she has lovingly woven for uh, Isaac end up being the inheritance of Ishmael. And uh, according to that midrash, this then provokes Isaac to ask, you know, Daddy, uh, where's the sheep? So he's, according to that midrash, Isaac is sort of trying to get out of it. Like, how far are we going to go with this? What's this all about? Trying to get out of it. But in the last analysis, the devil figure fails, and Isaac is on board. But his faith is shaken for a second there. Dr. Prusak, and I'm happy to welcome you to the uh, first event in the year-long faculty development series, Speaking of Scripture, Interfaith Conversations on Teaching Sacred Texts. This series is co-sponsored by the Villanova Center for Liberal Education, VCLE, and uh, the Villanova Institute for Teaching and Learning. So we want to thank the directors of, of both those those centers, so Jack Duty and Mary Lou Hill, and Carol Weiss, to whom we at BCLE are grateful. Thank you. 
uh, for support for today's workshop, which is entitled Teaching the Binding of Isaac, Balancing Bible and Midrash. We also thank the Department of Theology and Religious Studies and its chairperson, who's not here yet, Bernard P. Prusak. He'll be here soon. And the Department of Humanities and Augustinian Traditions and its chairperson, Kevin Hughes, who couldn't be with us today. Uh, though he might stop by, he said. It's my honor to introduce our distinguished guest, John Levinson, best professor of Jewish studies at Harvard University. I honestly can think of no better person to initiate our series whose aim is to improve and enrich our teaching of scripture, in particular in the context of the Augustine and Culture Seminar that all Villanova first-year students must take. More precisely, the aim of this series is to help us reflect on the implications of different ways of framing and approaching scripture, having interfaith conversations, which is to say with, with uh, scholars of different faith traditions, is a way for us to come to recognize the frames that we bring to our teaching of these texts and to glimpse other possibilities that we might communicate to our students. And Professor Levinson, we have with us today a master interpreter of the Hebrew Bible, conversant with the Talmud, Midrash, and later medieval rabbinic commentaries, the best of contemporary literary scholarship of the Bible, and contemporary historical critical research, which he both has criticized for its tendency to replace traditional interpretation and against this tendency has put to work for theological insights. Professor Levinson also brings profound knowledge of the Gospels and Paul's letters and of both the commonalities of Judaism and Christianity and the irreconcilable differences between the two. As he has observed, the context in terms of which a unit of literature is to be assessed is never self-evident, and as he has shown, changes of context can make a world of difference for what we take a text to be saying. To make this point by way of example, recontextualized by the New Testament, the Old Testament read by Christians no longer is quite the Hebrew Bible read by Jews. The titles of a handful of Professor Levinson's many books give us a sense of just how serious a scholar he is. These books include Creation and the Persistence of Evil, the Jewish drama of divine omnipotence, it's one, Resurrection and the Restoration of Israel, the Ultimate Victory of the God of Life, another, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and historical criticism, Jews and Christians in Biblical Studies, from which I quoted just a moment ago, and uh, the death and resurrection of the beloved son, the transformation of child sacrifice in Judaism and Christianity. This is a book that covers today's topic, focus of our workshop. I don't exaggerate when I say that this book astounded me. It really did. When I finished it, I was just amazed by it. So without further ado, please join me in warmly welcoming Professor Levinson. Thank you very much for that. Uh, thank you for that uh, very kind and uh, generous uh, introduction. I thought you were going to tell me you were astounded to be able to finish the book. <laughs> but said you, when you finished it, you were astounded. That sounded a little better. Uh, of course, a lot of uh, professors require their students to uh, read their own books. This is a very common thing. They pass out a syllabus, they have their own works on there. Uh, I consider that egocentric, narcissistic. I don't require my students to read my books. I only require them to buy them. <laughs> it doesn't do me any good if they read it. Take out a library and read this thing. It doesn't help me any. Just buy them multiple copies. You may want to read it more than once. Uh, and so, uh, also, I, it's always a pleasure to be at Villanova. I've been here before, and I, and I uh, both times have been so impressed by the commitment to liberal arts education, to great books education, uh, the, uh, 
the uh, seminars and the living arrangements in which people actually live together and talk together about little topics like liberty and justice uh, is really a, a tremendous source of satisfaction to anybody that believes in, uh, in classical ideals of education. It's very rare, I find, in American higher education today to find uh, people seriously engaged in such topics, even to find uh, faculty seriously engaged in such topics is, is rare. And so uh, I, uh, I want to commend all of you for that. Uh, never in my life, uh, I'm, I'm 59 years old, I know what all of you think, uh, you don't look a day over 58, uh, but never in my life have I ever met a, a, a Bernard Prusak before. And then today, what's the odds of this? Within two hours, I met two of them. That's really extraordinary. What's, what are the chances of that? It's like, like, like one in a billion that that would actually happen. And that's actually what, what happened to me today. So I thank uh, both of them for their assistance in uh, bringing me here and, uh, and helping me with this. Uh, what I thought I would do today, if everybody has the handout, and I thought I would do this even if you don't have the handout, uh, is uh, to talk about uh, this text, Genesis 22, uh, and... Uh, First, for maybe the first hour or so, we'll talk about some of the big issues it might raise. Uh, but particularly, what I want to do is to uh, give it a close read-through. Read through it carefully, uh, uh, making some uh, comments. And then maybe in the second hour or, or uh, sooner, if we finish sooner, to uh, uh, talk about some of the issues this raises, the big existential, theological, conceptual issues that this raises that ought to come up in a program uh, like the August Augustine and Culture uh, Seminar. So if you have this uh, handout, let's, let's just talk, uh, uh, let's just read through this. I, care if I assume many of you have read this already. I think you, uh, those who haven't, maybe saw the movie. Actually, I don't think there is a movie of Genesis 22. Uh, uh, years ago, some movie came out called The Prince of Egypt. I never saw it. Someone asked me, have you seen it? I said, no, I'm waiting for the book. Uh, but so uh, you probably know the story of Abraham that much. You can say that Abraham was a man uh, promised that he'd be the father of a great nation. Uh, but there was a problem there. Uh, he was the father of nobody, and his wife was infertile. Now, uh, uh, the, uh, how is a man who's the father of nobody going to become the father of a great nation? It reminds me of that uh, slightly off-color joke at the time the Jew got on the bus and sat next to the Catholic priest. And the Catholic priest was wearing the collar. He hadn't yet kicked the habit. And the uh, Jew turns to him and says, pardon me, sir, uh, do you know you have your shirt on backwards? <laughs> and the priest says, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm a, I'm a father. And the Jew says, well, I'm a father, too. You don't see me wearing my shirt backwards. <laughs> and the priest says, no, you don't, you don't understand. I'm a father to thousands. The Jew said, in that case, leave your shirt the way it is and put your pants on backwards. <laughs> now, Abraham has promised he's going to be the father of thousands, but actually he's the father of nobody. And that's a major problem. I won't go through all the uh, complexities and intricacies of this uh, fascinating and uh, literarily and theologically rich story. Uh, but I'll simply say that finally... his wife is 90, she gives birth to the promised son, Isaac. And what we have in this chapter 22 is uh, a story in which it uh, looks as though he's going to have to give up Isaac. That's in 40 seconds, and not counting the uh, tasteless joke, uh, that's the background to Genesis 22 itself immediately, the narrative background. So here we are in, in text one on the handout. Sometime afterward, God put Abraham to the test. 
One question one could ask immediately is, what brought about this test? It seems to come out of absolutely nowhere. It seems to come absolutely out of nowhere. You wouldn't have guessed by the end of chapter 21, which those of you with advanced training in mathematics will know is the chapter before 22, <laughs> that there was going to be any sort of test that this was ever going to be happening. Uh, you might, you can question in uh, rabbinic uh, interpreters, interpreters of the Hebrew Bible in the Jewish community in the first, second, third, fourth centuries, uh, and actually even much earlier than that, even as early as the second century BCE, are trying to figure out what is the, what, is, what provoked this? What instigated this test? 